everyone. This is Wayne, and this is the Greenfield Podcast. And the podcast today is is one I've been wanting to have for quite some time because I've I've got a buddy, Leighton Woodhouse, who is a big supporter of ours on the mayoral campaign. He's become sort of a heterodox, and and I won't. I don't even want to say heterodox. I think he's become a critic of the modern left, despite having two decades of history as a union organizer, as an anarchist protesting the WTO meetings in Seattle in 1999. And he and his friend, Shant Mesrobrian, have, uh, have, have created a, a certain amount of dialogue on Twitter about race, about cancel culture, about woke politics. And I think it's important for all of us to try and grapple with. Because even if you don't agree with him, and I don't in a lot of areas, having this conversation at a minimum will help us appreciate that there are folks who can disagree with us and disagree with us in complete good faith. But more broadly, I hope it really gets us to solutions on some of these hot button issues because so many of us are feeling lost and confused. So many of us, especially from communities of color, are feeling unsafe. And I don't think we're seeing much progress. I really don't. And I think having these sorts of tough conversations is how we are going to get to progress, even if they're uncomfortable, even if we have to deal with people, including people we're close friends with, who disagree with us very fiercely on issues that are ethically important to us. So I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I do. Uh, Without further ado, here's Leighton and Sean. I'm really excited to have both of you on the podcast. And uh, Leighton's a good buddy of mine. He's helped out with a lot of the animal rights work I've done. Uh, He did some of the initial reporting on DAC that really got us on the radar of the national media. And I'm excited to talk to him about some of the projects he's been working on. And and I actually met the other guests on the podcast today, Sean, through Leighton. But I think the, the central reason I'm really interested to talk to the two of you is because both of you have, in a sense, been a part of progressive politics for decades. And you've now become, I'd say, not just heterodox, but I don't know if you think this is fair, but I would describe it as brutal critics of the modern <laughs> left. And, you know, I, I don't think everyone's going to agree with either of you. I don't think you probably agree with each other on a lot of things. And I certainly don't agree with you on everything. But I do think it's a perspective that, that is really, really important to entertain. And, and I want us to understand the nuances of it instead of just shouting at each other on social media. So um, let me just start with this. What do you see, if anything, and if I'm mischaracterizing your perspective, please challenge me on this, but what do you see as the biggest problems with the modern left? You want to start, Leighton, or? Well, you were talking about the monoculture, so I was thinking that yeah. would be a good time to tee up sure. what you were already talking to me about off mic. Yeah, yeah, I mean... My biggest critique of the left is that it, um, to accomplish the things it wants to or purports to or pretends to accomplish, um, it should stop being the left. It should not, it should not do it. It should get out of <laughs> the business of doing it. Um, and the, what I mean by that is that the left today is a specific thing, right? uh, People tend to want to think of the left as this amorphous kind of system of belief that anyone can just plug into Mm -hmm. and tap into and believe, right? And kind of act on and then call themselves a leftist or a socialist or a progressive or whatever. But the truth is the left is an actual thing. It's a, it's, it, 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 it emanates from specific, a specific demographic and it emanates from uh, specific institutions, right? Mm-hmm. The left is run by actual institutions. It's not, as much as I think a lot of people on the left like to think that it's just this ragtag group of people who just believe in, you know, hopeful things and re- they're revolutionaries and they, you know, they read the right books and they get, you know, the right ideas. The truth is it's a demographic and it's not a demographic that is 
conducive to accomplishing the things that it purports to want to accomplish. So what is um, this demographic? So the demographic, so there's two sides, right? There's the, the demographic and the institutional. The demographic is largely, the most important one I would say is as hyper-educated, mm-hmm. right? Uh, all college degrees and many, many grad school degrees, right? Um, that is, that's emerging as one of the biggest divides in the country right now in terms of partisan, cultural, socioeconomic, is people who have college degrees and people who don't. And the people who have college degrees are a distinct minority in this country, which often comes as a shock to people who have college degrees. They think everyone has college degrees because they only hang out with people who have college degrees, but um, most people don't, right? So that's one. Um, the other one is that it's all people who live in cities mostly, right? Um, and I'm talking about in terms of influence mm-hmm. um, on the left, right? People who tend to be very active in left politics and speak for left politics. Um, so it's, you know, it's that. It's people who work in certain industries, culture industries, people who work in NGOs and nonprofits, and also just generally civil society. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, teachers and librarians and things like that. Um, you know, nurses. Not that, like, those are you know, those are bad people, but I'm just saying it's specific, right? It's like, and when a, you know, when a, an ideology or a movement emanates from a very specific group of people, it's going to take on qualities and preferences of those those groups, right? And so it's not really going to be about necessarily an ideology, but it's going to be about interests, interests of those people. And then if you go to the institutional side, the institutions are, you know, it's very related to the demographic, right? Like, like I said, it's civil society, it's NGOs, it's people who work in, in these, you know, sectors and industries. And, you know, the, I guess the simplest way to say it is that none of this is working class. It's mm-hmm. not working class people, which is, you know, the majority of the country. And, you know, leftist politics purports still, to some degree, a little bit today, I think it still purports to try to be representing working class people. Yeah. And, um, and it's just, does, you know, I think for a long time I gave that a chance. I don't think it. I don't think no. it's a thing anymore. I don't. I don't think it actually works. You didn't just give that a chance. You were part of that for a yeah, long time, exactly. right? And in many yeah. ways, you still yeah. are. You just yeah. described the demographic that you kind of fit, right? So yeah, no, that's exactly the right. The left should stop yeah. thinking about people like me and start thinking about yeah. people different from me. Yeah, and just because our listeners don't have this context, mm-hmm. I, I know from conversations I have Layton and just stuff you've done in the past, I mean, you were part of Obama's campaign, yeah. right, in 2008. Yeah. And I actually want to ask you a lot of questions about mm-hmm. that and the shift from organizing for Obama to organizing yeah. for America. So as someone who's been a political consultant, a writer for a lot of these institutions that you're saying are mm-hmm. not sufficient for us to make the progress we want to make, mm-hmm. and as someone who's part of the demographic you're saying is limiting our ability to create change, mm-hmm. What is it that drove you to reach this conclusion that the biggest problem with the left is mm-hmm. kind of me? Yeah, right. right. <laughs> uh, probably, probably. So, you know, following the Obama years, I became pretty disillusioned with, with democratic politics, partisan huh. democrat. I mean, I always considered myself a progressive democrat who was sort of on the inside trying to push the party left. Yeah. Right. But that's what Obama's campaign was at the time. Right. In 2007, it was like Clinton was the establishment candidate and Obama was the insurgent. Yeah. Right. And so identified with the campaign pretty, it was, it was a fit at the time. Right. Um, following that, you know, directly after the campaign, I decided to not actually pursue like working government. Um, you know, I did move back to DC and want to be a part of, you know, the, the, the revolution. But, um, I decided to go more in the direction of taking the things we learned from the campaign 
um, and also taking the movement that we built from the campaign and translating it into a more of an uh, outside external force, right? Like I didn't want it to be, I mean, so I worked in the operation that really was the the movement kind Mm -hmm. of building, you know, like I, I was doing the kind of like messaging and fundraising, the online digital stuff, the organizing and all that, right? Mm-hmm. Like we built that, gosh, I, I guess it was like a $12 million or 12 million email list yep. um, at the time that was impressive for that time anyway. Yeah. Um, Bernie blew past that um, in, the, in the consecutive elections. But um, at that time it was groundbreaking. And so I was part of the effort of figuring out what do we do with all these people, right? Mm-hmm. And I wanted to keep it on the outside and make it a kind of an external force um on you know not just not just congress but even on obama if it had to be right yeah um and so you know directly which was pretty I, consistent with the rhetoric of the campaign at the time i was a part of this campaign too yeah. as a volunteer so you mm-hmm. were one of the people probably writing emails that I was receiving yeah no was, no i was I <laughs> as mean, a yeah. volunteer yeah you absolutely the, did, the messaging yeah. of the campaign was so similar to bernie's right mm-hmm. it's, yeah it's it's not me it's us Wait, did yeah. you write any of those one those one word subject lines remember that was just famous for that hey you know what? I, What's up? I didn't because I hated that. <laughs> I hated that shit. I never Got a lot did of that. Opens. Yeah, no, I, I know it worked, but I didn't do that stuff. I tried to be more creative. Um, it is true that you wrote Obama's statement to organizing for America after yeah. they launched it, right? Though that you were the one who wrote yes. that. I saw, I saw that on the yes. internet. That's so pretty I, cool. Yeah, and that's a good statement. I love that. But it, I mean, yeah, if he did it, it would yeah, have been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can talk more about that in a second. Yeah. I'll tell you about my experiences with Obama too, and yeah, why yeah. I think. Like to me, it was a weird thing because I was incredibly excited by that campaign. I mean, who could, who, how could you not be? It was right. a historic campaign, historic victory for so many different reasons. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Obama was not the right leader for progressive movement right. for for various reasons we can get into, just mm-hmm. based on my personal experience with him. But mm-hmm. but I interrupted you. So, so tell me more about like how you reached that evolution. You're working for Obama. Mm-hmm. You're writing these messages for the campaign, building this grassroots movement, and then you're saying you wanted to keep it outside mm-hmm. of like the DC establishment. Yeah, and so, okay. you know, it was, it's tough to really talk too much about why or how things shook out, but because most of it was like kind of, you know, cigar filled, like cigar smoke filled, like negotiations in the White House political mm. operation where they just kind of decided at the end of the day to not go that direction and to kind of stuff the whole list of the DNC and turn it into a rah rah Obama fight for Obama, what he, what the president wants to do. Yeah. And, um, that's just the direction it went in. You know, I, I stuck around. They put it at the DNC and I helped them, you know, transition, transition that whole thing at the DNC. But, you know, when it came time to, you know, are you going to stick around and help us actually do this? I mean, I was there for the first budget fight okay. um, to pass the first budget. Sean, were you at those Tuesday meetings at the Hilton? Do you know what I'm No, talking I remember about? them. I did not go to the Messina meetings, but okay. I remember them. I went to a yeah. couple of them. I was just wondering oh, really? if maybe we found ourselves in the same room. It no, was that a would have been spectacle. No, that what, what was that? It, it was, was a pathetic spectacle. Oh, really? Uh, so well, these, it was. I mean, yeah, I, I know about them. I know what, what on there. It was just Jim Messina. I mean, it was a microcosm of what I'm talking about yeah. right now, which is Jim Messina saying, "Okay, so here's what we were we're doing, and all you leaders of these." you know, grassroots groups and all these interest Fall groups. Fall in line. Fall Here's line. what you have to do. Yeah, yeah. You know, no I longer... mean, the most arrogant, I mean, just the most yeah. arrogant approach, literally the opposite of what the campaign was about. Yeah. So how did that happen to the campaign? Because it, at least from the outside, it mm-hmm. felt to me like they really wanted to do a genuinely grassroots campaign. Mm-hmm. And it was a genuinely insurgent campaign in the sense that, I mean, there obviously were some establishment forces that came around Obama fairly soon mm-hmm. because people didn't like Hillary. But for mm-hmm. the most part, 
she had a stranglehold over the establishment. Yeah. So, so it sounds like to me that from an outside perspective, it was genuinely a grassroots campaign that mm-hmm. was focused on people yeah. power. Mm-hmm. So what do you think it was that changed in the campaign? Um, I, I think it was two things. I think, um, you know, the, the, the first thing is that I think it was just irresistible. Like yeah. the, um, it was sort of like the, the infinity gauntlet, this email list, like they couldn't <laughs> the resist the glove, you know, they could like 12 million like people willing to like, I mean, this list generated yeah. half a billion dollars, dollars yeah. right? Said all the records are fundraising. And everyone yeah. in town was terrified. Like all, yeah. all, all the members, like, and it was specifically Democratic members of Congress were terrified of like mm-hmm. what this list could do to them and like whip them into shape and kind of like harass them over yeah. the phones and the emails and everything. And I think it was irresistible like to have that, have contr- set up, you know, they even, I, I believe they set up some kind of special like unprecedented like arrangement where like people in the white house could still kind of control what was mm-hmm. going on or maybe that's why they put it at the dnc can i just I say i don't want to derail you but they fetishize that list because it's the, it's the same thing every election oh it's yeah like, no it was the yeah. list as some yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. like mm-hmm. like no. special sauce when it's mm-hmm. like well the reason why bernie was able to generate such a huge list other than the fact that technology was developing so it was just easy for everybody to generate mm-hmm. lists mm-hmm. but also he had a message that resonated but mm-hmm. it's like if you take that list out of bernie's hands and yeah, hand it to somebody else it's not as if it's yeah. going to produce the same results it's mm-hmm. like it's, just, it's not the list right yeah. right it's, it's the relationship right. it's the relationship with the yeah. candidate yeah and the culture right. of the campaign too because right. exactly. obama's campaign things. genuinely did feel like i was a part of this and i i knew a lot of people there's a, a friend of mine who is a math PhD student at the University of Chicago, and he was like the top candidate his year. So he was, mm-hmm. I think he's now at Stanford. I forget where he is now. But he was like basically the number one graduate student in math at the time. And he just gave up his career for a short period of time to yeah. wow. go around the country knocking on doors. Mm-hmm. And so, so you had all these people who were just sacrificing so much just out of the goodness of their hearts because they really believed in the campaign. And Bernie's campaign had the same culture. Mm-hmm. And I actually think the problem for both campaigns was the same. I don't think either of those leaders actually genuinely believes in that model. Mm-hmm. I can't say as I can't say as confidently that about Bernie because I've never met him, mm-hmm. but I have met President Obama on mm-hmm. a number of occasions. And no, I, he never did. Yeah, I, I don't I think never, he ever did. He yeah. was always. I mean, he he's a brilliant guy, and yeah. he does care, and he's a, like a high integrity person. I admire that fuck out of that guy, mm-hmm. but he doesn't believe in ordinary I've people. I've met Bernie, and I think your right about instinct Bernie? is correct. Yeah. But it's not so much that he like Obama's like a technocrat. I think Bernie yeah. just really doesn't give a shit about those details he's kind of an asshole honestly he's just like a curmudgeonly guy (laughs) i didn't like him very much when i met him he was like interesting yeah not not a pleasant person that was before 2016 that was before i got like all on board trying to get him to be president but at the same you know the whole time when everybody's like rah-rahing bernie and i was like i was gunning Uh for him to be president but i was also like I, I don't like this guy. You yeah. know, but you know, yeah. that, that, but the truth is about Bernie is that, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think you're right. I haven't met him personally, but I have heard that from a lot of people, but I think like, that's why he actually has a certain charisma that people mm. like he's, he's got like, maybe you could call it an anti charisma, but yeah. it's a charisma. Right. Absolutely. And that's what his candidacy always relied on and made him so successful is that yeah. he himself personally wasn't didn't, wasn't warm but like he had such a strength in terms of like the image that he presented at the right time yeah i agree know? he feels real at a time where everything yeah. feels fake i mean yeah. i think bernie and trump both have that right they have that whether it's correct or not i think with trump maybe it's not correct or maybe it mm-hmm. is i really don't know trump either maybe he really is that sort of person but mm-hmm. with bernie i think people hear him talk and, and this is why joe rogan loved him too i mean honestly when yeah. you make that comparison I hate to say this because, you know, I, I, uh, I, I think the same thing that you do about Donald Trump, 
but at least Donald Trump is still the same crazy ass guy he was <laughs> yeah. when he was president <laughs> today. Yeah. Right. Bernie has, is a, is a good boy. You know, yeah. he's like, he's fallen mm-hmm. in line. Yeah. He's just, he's, de- he's, you know, he, he immediately endorsed and got behind Biden, Biden which, yeah. you know, it's expected. I'm not, I don't blame him for that. That's like what you're supposed to do. But like ever since he's yeah. just been like, he's just, he's, he's kind of an establishment. He, yeah, he's Democratic like, why senator. are you even mm-hmm. an independent? Like you're, you're just, you're a Democrat. You're just, mm-hmm. you're the same, you know, yeah. and it's like, that's fine. It, it, you are what you are, but that's not what you ran on. That's yeah, not what you yeah, branded yeah. yourself on. So I, I kind of think that like, like Trump as awful as he is, is more authentic, authentic in, his, yeah, in his, in his, in his outsiderness than Bernie ever yeah. was. I mean, that lends some weight to your hypothesis about the infinity gauntlet of yeah. politics. That yeah. Once you're given the gauntlet, because, I mean, Bernie's now the chair of the, the budget committee in the mm-hmm. Senate, or yeah. is it the finance committee? I don't even remember which one it is. But I know it's incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. And he has a good personal relationship with Biden. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's yeah. at the height of power. Even though he's not president himself, he's more powerful than he's ever been. Mm-hmm. Right. And maybe that power just comes with it. Right. A and certain it- philosophy that... Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, and so that was one half of it, I think, with Obama. I think there was another part of it, too, which is that, you know, just being there at the time, I I distinctly remember. And I, th- I feel like a lot of people don't recall this too much was that, you know, they were very obsessed with their branding, which they kind of accredited with their victory, which was that mm. Obama was post politics. Right. Mm. He was beyond politics and he was beyond um he was that uniter, you mm-hmm. know, he was this very kind of bipartisan, healing Washington image, right? And I think that played a big role in not wanting to kind of build anything or structure anything in a way that seemed kind of confrontational. Like, I think mm-hmm. they had, they really had this idea that they were going to waltz in with that powerful brand of the uniter, of the of the above and beyond politics. Um, and they just had a rude awakening right away, yeah. you know? Um, both with you know the Recovery Act and then with health care and consecutively mm-hmm. over and over right with the um with the even with the budget um you know I think they just realized eventually but like they never veered away from that because like the brand at the end of the day was like the holy grail of I mean, Obama. We saw they were the yeah. bailouts before the inauguration. Yeah, already, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, it started cards. right away. It was this idea that like. You know, I, I'm I'm the change. Obama mm-hmm. felt like I'm the change. I'm so much change, me personally. That we don't actually need other change. That we don't, yeah. we shouldn't rock the boat too much mm-hmm. in terms of like actual change. Like yeah. if I, because like if people see this, you know, the first black president and this guy who used to, you know, like have, have this, you know, hippie-ish background and mm-hmm. hang out with radicals or whatever, you know, because the country had been... Hell and out with Bill Ayers. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, the company... Bill Ayers is my neighbor. Oh, really? Yeah. He's actually one of the reasons I became an activist. That's a oh, separate story. But uh, interesting. Um, yeah. And the country was bombarded with this messaging that like, you know, combine that with actual radical change. And yeah. that could be, you know, that could be. Now, ironically, you know, if we look back on it, that radical change could have avoided a lot of other radicalism that came down the line. Like that could yeah. have been, you know, you know, that could have been the key to avoiding a lot of you know, things that happen. Obama yeah. is like the incarnation of what the left is now, I think, except mm. that the left has gotten a lot dumber than Obama was. <laughs> you know, he was a smart version of what the left is mm-hmm. now. But I was talking to my dad the other day and we were joking about this because we were talking about how, you know, we were, um, we were talking about how wasps are um, still perceived as like the, 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 the click in power, which is mm-hmm. ridiculous because wasps have been like a pretty, uh, you know, sub, sub, 
pri- subprime demographic for quite some time, not part of the power elite. And we were joking that actually the last um, WASP president will be Barack Obama. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Know, Obama's yeah. like, a, he's he's uh, he's got all the trappings, all the mannerisms. The pedigree. He's, the pedigree. Yeah. Yeah. Going to Harvard Law School. He's, yeah, he's, yeah. The, he's the hyper-educated, intellectual technocrat. Um, and he's got you know, his liberal progressive politics in that very sort of waspy, like, um, um, sort of, uh, paternal way. And, uh, and that's his relationship. And I think that's the left's relationship now to the working class, which is this very like Ted talk kind of like, we're, we're, uh, you know, we we're educated. We have the pedigrees. We have mm-hmm. the credentials. Mm-hmm. We know the solutions. We know how to. We know we we know how to talk to the people with the money. Um, we are the people who can create the programs that will social engineer mm-hmm. a better future for the plebeians. Mm-hmm. And but when the plebes actually have their own opinions, when yeah. they actually step to the table, and like we saw this, you know, most uh, uh, starkly with 2016, when all these working class people were behind Donald Trump. And I'm not saying that Donald Trump is some sort of like standard bearer for the working class. People voted for Trump because they were pissed yeah. at the existing system. They weren't voting for Trump because they love Trump. Yeah. I mean, some of them love Trump, but a lot of them didn't. A lot of them were just like, fuck everybody else. We're going to mm-hmm. vote for this guy. The, the middle arsonist. finger candidate. Yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. so they so they voted for, uh, so, you know, uh, so... They vote for him because I think they felt he didn't have contempt for them. The, and, I, and I think he actually and, doesn't. And that, that, and that's the interesting cont- thing. That he did have contempt for all for the ruling he class. Did. Yeah, and actually that probably is the right. more stronger yeah. the stronger yeah. sentiment that they really they really attached themselves to. I yeah. Mean, so it's like, I should say the they, but I mean honestly, like my dad voted for Donald Trump. Yeah. Like it's kind of shocking. Here's a guy who's an immigrant who faced enormous amount of discrimination. Actually doesn't shock me at all. But, but he but he's also someone who was in central Indiana. You know, adopted Christianity, and and always felt like the higher ups at his company treated. I mean, he wasn't a working class person. He was he ended up being a senior research scientist, but he was never somebody who was a powerful person. He was just mm-hmm. kind of a, right. a worker mm-hmm. in the right. company, and he felt that his entire life he was dismissed and trampled on by people. And he doesn't like it when people are arrogant. Trump was the candidate of resentment, and yeah. then you have to ask, well, what did all those people resent? What, including in twenty twenty, what did forty million people, people who voted resent. for Donald Trump continue to resent? And you know, the left's answer is boring and predictable. Well, it's because they're all racist. They mm-hmm. resent immigrants. Sure, some of them are racist, and so and a lot of them resent immigrants. That's true. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not a fan of either of those instincts. But it's much bigger than that. Yeah. And, you know, the, 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 the thing that they resent is the professional sort of political elite, which is by and large um, liberal leaning at this point. So it's like you, you like I would have a lot more sympathy for today's left if there was some self-awareness and if there was some serious maturity in terms of their own introspection. Um, I guess I'm given away by saying there, I should say our, I don't know if I'm a leftist anymore or not. I mean, yeah. but, but, uh, but I think you are Leighton. <laughs> I actually think, I actually don't. What think, an insult. Are you going to take that lying down Leighton? Damn. Yeah, look, every, everybody says this, but I actually don't think that I've changed that much. I, I think that think the left has yeah. changed. Yeah. I don't look when I got into, when I, um, started as a professional quote unquote leftist. Yeah was in the labor movement. I was a union organizer. And what I signed up for was like today you've got this, um, this, uh, so just the other day, um, the surgeon general, um, put out this advisory 
that basically leaning on the social media platforms to mm-hmm. censor people. Yeah. To censor disinformation the, about COVID-19. Exactly. Yeah, there's a huge exactly. controversy about this and it's all on, on all the, right. So, so, so this, like the way I read it was like, okay, of course we want to save lives. Of course we want to get people vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That's a nice cover story, but really it's about controlling all these, like con- the, it's what I said before, when you have a bunch of non-elite people mm-hmm. who are saying their piece or expressing their opinions, yeah. look, non-elite people can be wrong just like elite people can be wrong. And you can like, if you're in the government, it is your, not just your prerogative, but it's your, um, but it's your duty to go and try to correct the record. But that's not what Murthy is doing. That's not what the Biden administration is doing. Yeah. They're just shutting, shutting people down. up, silencing them. And so it's sort of like, I didn't sign up for a left wing that would look at the working class population in this country and say, we know what's best for you. Mm-hmm. And when you disagree with our prescription of what's best for you, shut the fuck up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're going to silence you. We're going to, you know, uh, we're going to shame you. We're going to call you racist and bigots. It's like, look, I, I, I don't have a lot of, sim- there's a lot of people in the, 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 in those working class constituencies who I disagree with vehemently on policy questions and opinion questions, but there's still a basic level of just respect mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we should have for each other just as human beings and as citizens of the United States, you know? Yeah. And like that, that is missing from, from this sort of like, as Sean was explaining, this sort of like hyper-educated yeah. uh, 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 coastal elite strata that now uh, runs the left. So yeah. at this point, like, I don't know that I'm a leftist anymore, but it's not because I think that I've changed dramatically. Maybe I have though, you know, I, I can be as unself-aware as the next person, but I think that the left mm-hmm. is not the left that I came into like, you know, mm-hmm. however many years ago when I signed up for labor movement. Yeah. It's a different left. Yeah. I definitely want to dig more into this, this kind of idea that racism and bigotry and allegations of racism and bigotry have become this almost tool for control by yeah. cultural mm-hmm. elites. Mm-hmm. People are controlling the cultural capital because I disagree with you about a lot of that. Although I think there's interesting points you're making that are worth examining, but um, you're not allowed to disagree with me. Shut me down then, buddy. <laughs> shut me down. Let's see. Let's, but I, I actually want to just make sure I give you a chance to answer the same question. Do you, do you think that is the fundamental problem? I mean, it sounds like you're sympathetic to the concern that Sean raised that the modern left has basically ignored the people who we nominally are supposed to be representing, the working class folks. And, and unions are actually a great example of the alternative model because I see unions, at least in their ideal form, as being very focused on the practical needs of people who are not in a position of power within this institution. Good unions are. Yeah. Good unions are. And there are a lot of bad unions too, but that's the ideal of what a union is. And it makes right. sense to me. That's where you started and, and that's why you now see the left that's being, as it's being kind of executed in modern politics is very much falling away from that original vision. But what do you see as the biggest problem with, with progressive I, I politics? Mean, I, when I, I remember when I came into sort of like radical lefty politics, which I was part of for a while, um, uh, and learning with some amusement and shock that the communist party had of the USA had not endorsed uh, like a presidential candidate who wasn't the, uh, the, the candidate of the democratic party in like mm. a number of decades. Like this is like, 20 years ago or something that they were like, mm-hmm. you know, when the communist party USA was endorsing Al Gore, I was like, what? Com- <laughs> what? You know, it didn't make sense to me in retrospect. I kind of respect it because like yeah. the, basically like the within, you know, the left is, left is very sectarian and within the 
um, sort of revolutionary communist movement. You've got all these different sects, and you know the Trotskyists, of course, are going to go off and endorse uh, Ralph Nader or whoever. And the Communist Party's philosophy was like, we go where the working class goes. Mm. And if the and and they were like, unfortunately, the Democratic Party is the the party that represents the majority of the working class in the United States of America. And we want to replace them. But until we get to that point, you know, we are going to meet people where they are at, Mm -hmm. which ends up with the preposterous spectacle of the communist party of the USA endorsing Al Gore. But in a way I was like, I don't know, is, is it, is it, better to be some purist Trotskyist mm-hmm. and endorse, mm-hmm. you know, Winona LaDuke or something mm-hmm. who like nobody who's working class has ever heard of. And the only people who, you know, give to her campaign are college professors and people who make over $150,000 a year and live in places like Berkeley, you know, it's like, is that that's the working class? That's the radical working class movement. Um, I became as a part when I was part of the union, we ran picket lines where you know we had spent months organizing workers to go and take this radical step of saying fuck you to the boss walking out mm-hmm. off the job walking the picket line staying true to the, we spent months and months sometimes years building yeah. that that, uh, that that campaign um and then we'd have like these i mean it was a joke it didn't actually pose any threat but we'd have these like members of the Spartacist league or the mm. iso or whatever these like trotskyists like flyering our th- these our workers saying uh your union leadership is going to sell you out you know mm. blah 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 like they hadn't done any of this work yeah. right they, they were just coming in and just with their ideology and um and you know they got laughed at for the most part but it was like that to me was like mass movement politics is what we were doing and this vanguardist politics was what they were doing yeah the, these these people represented themselves and like a handful of people who came to their meetings. Mm-hmm. That's who they represented and they purported to speak for some mythical mm-hmm. idea of the working class. We represented actual workers yeah. who were actually making material sacrifices, who were doing something that they'd never done before and like going out on strike. It's an incredibly dramatic thing for a yeah. worker to do, especially somebody who's done it for the, who's doing it for the first time. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I think the, the, the left today is has become a vanguard movement but the vanguard is not just a few people meet in a coffee shop it's this tier of four-year liberal arts college educated sometimes postgraduate um uh upwardly mobile people who live in um urban environments who have a lot of privilege six-figure dsa members yeah exactly Mm -hmm. and 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 that that's the vanguard that purports to speak on behalf of the working class. And, and I don't me, buy it. And meanwhile, Joe Biden won the working class. The working yeah. class. And that's yeah. why he's the president right now. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that radical past, because I'm I'm actually kind of surprised that you say your moment of awakening or your moment of entry into politics was the union work you've done, because that, from what I know about you, one of your formative experiences was being at the WTO protest and. Yeah, what was it, 1999. It was, yeah, it was. So it was that wasn't the moment. Well, it was actually okay. the, the 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 most formative political moment was the WTO protest in 1999, where I, um, you know, was arrested, arrested and, right? and yeah. spent a few days in jail, and um, and it was very inspiring, um, mostly because there was a, a long chain of civil disobedience that went yeah. through the processing. Uh, uh, through the the process being processed for 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 um, incarceration, and then also there was this jail solidarity and legal solidarity strategy. It was a very inspiring um, uh, 
sort of display of solidarity that I'd, I'd never seen before. That and these are incredibly radical protests in a moment where our radical. entire civilization, and I mean, not American, I mean, global civilization, yes. human civilization was at an inflection point because you have sort of the fall of communism in the 19, late 1980s, early 1990s. And then you've got this burgeoning kind of global capitalist system that's right. forming. Well, I and remember. So the, uh, this is where all the elites from that yeah. system are coming together to shape the future, frankly, the entire planet Earth, right. not just human civilization, but our entire planet. And there were folks who wanted a revolutionary rethinking of that who went to Seattle yeah. to basically shut the meetings down. And you were one of them. Yeah. And we did shut the meetings down. And and uh, and when I got back, so I remember being on the bus and we were in shackles like we were like. It wasn't just handcuffs. It was like they, they took off the zip ties, they put on metal ones, and they had our like our ankles shackled. They had, oh. like it was like crazy. It was like we just murdered somebody. And uh, and I remember talking to my because I went up there with a few people who were labor organizers because a, a friend of mine, Muni, who I think you've met before, is um, yeah, is a labor organizer, and and um, I wasn't at the time. He was, and I went up with him and his friends. And at the time on the bus, I was like, and like bear in mind, I was like in my my early 20s you know i wasn't um you know i was a little bit romantic in terms uh -huh. of my um view of politics but i was like is do you think that like union organizing is the most subversive activity you can engage in to like undermine capitalism and and my friend who was arrested with me was like yes i was like i'm gonna do that so, then, <laughs> so, then I, so, so it led immediately into the labor organizing <laughs> thing but the thing and i remember getting back and i was talking to my boss at the time who's the organizing director of the union a guy named glenn goldstein who's a phenomenal organizer and he was like, oh, I wish I'd been there. I was telling him about the WTO, and he's like, ah, I wish I'd been there. Yeah. Um, it's very inspiring. He's like, but, you know, the thing you should bear in mind is, like, you know, we in the union spent, like, years mobilizing for that action. And you went there, and you saw the fruits of it. Mm -hmm. But, like, it took a, a huge amount of, like, grunt work to get to that point. And uh, I remember that still, like, 20 years later that he'd said that because my immediate experience after that was, like, being part of the union and doing that grunt work. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, yeah, I came into it by seeing the spectacle of it. Yeah. Like, I, I didn't organize for the WTO. Yeah. I just showed up. You came at the like, end point, basically. I came at the end, and I was mm -hmm. like, whoa. And this this is, like, I want to be able to do this. Yeah, it yeah. was amazing and inspiring. Yeah, and then my next piece of my political education was was the sexy work mm -hmm. of standing in parking lots um handing flyers to workers who do not want to talk to you yeah. and like literally the the day like, they're just like accosting them being yeah. like talk about union you know and it was a and like and did that for a number of years and and uh and so and it was like that's the that's hey that's what it takes like yeah. that's the grassroots work yeah. that 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 it takes and that's the work that i mean i hate to sound so like some old geezer being like kids these days but like yeah. the, the 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 rose emoji uh dsa people on twitter yeah, they don't get it they don't know that world yeah. like they haven't spent weeks in like some shitty hotel in some exurb um because yeah. they're going out every morning on shift change at a hospital to yeah. talk to to talk to workers in a parking lot no, they just know like how to put hashtags on stuff and like yeah. and like scold people and 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 uh, and call people racist and yeah. just like you know do this whole like shame campaign. It's just, it's not the same thing. Yeah, I think there's there was something about the 1990s and and it's interesting because you know one of the things you told me I should look at before having this conversation with you is this book called The Revolt of the Public by Martin Gurry about the decline in trust in government institutions. When you look at polling data on decline in trust, it actually has not unfolded over the last five years. It's happened over the last 30 years. 
And the 1990s were a point, a low point in public trust. And, and this isn't just because of the Clinton scandals. I mean, obviously, Republicans lost a lot of trust in Clinton because of the Monica Lewinsky affair. I think a lot of it had to do with these massive transitions that were happening in middle America yeah. um, that has eviscerated the middle class. The middle class basically doesn't exist in the United States anymore. And a lot of it has to do with globalism absolutely. and capitalism. And, and these, the stuff we were protesting at the WTO. Absolutely. The stuff you're protesting at the WTO. I actually say often that like if the WTO, if, so the WTO was the, was the debut of, an, of a very powerful grassroots anti-globalization movement that then landed in um, D.C. at the um, IMF World Bank meeting, um, and then it came to the NATO uh, mm-hmm. a summit in in um, in Quebec City. There were like all these like huge convergences. It was a building burgeoning movement that was worldwide. Yeah. It was huge. It was transformative. It was world historical. And then nine eleven happened, and it all fell apart. Everything changed. Yeah. If nine if Bin Laden hadn't thrown had had sent those yeah. planes into those buildings. Obviously, a lot would be different, but one of the major things that would be different is I think that our our entire politics would have been changed because that just cut that this movement that was rising was eviscerated by that. Mm-hmm. First of all, because of the Patriot Act, mm-hmm. and second of all, because everybody focused their war on their energy on stopping the war in Iraq, yeah. and it became completely diverted into other incredibly critical emergencies that needed to happen. But then we did not. We were no longer building yeah. that movement that we were building against global capitalism. Yeah. There was a moral panic, 100%, about the threat of Islamic terrorism. Yeah. And it diverted all of our attention from the material conditions most people were living in. And, and the weird thing is that now the inheritors of that message, of that of that resistance to global capitalism, are Steve Bannon and the Trumpists. Mm-hmm. Like, they've taken that because that that that— the pain never went away. That mm-hmm. suffering never went away. That resentment never went away. And it wasn't just on the left. The left, you know, obviously the WTO was, was everybody who was in the, the protests were leftists. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like a right-wing populist contingent then. Right. But those, but they were speaking on behalf of the working class. And, uh, and whether they deserve to speak on their behalf or not is another question. But, you know, they, but it was a, an expression of working class resentment over all these global, global trade policies. And, then the left abandoned that for understandable reasons because of 9-11, but abandoned it nonetheless. And now, 20 years later, it pops back up, but it's a right-wing Republican movement. Hmm. Now, my question there, and you know more about this than me, and I think you were more aware and conscious than, than I was at the time. That's a way of, of what, saying I'm older than exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> which, which I try and get in every time. <laughs> so that's the one right there. Um now, do you think they represent the same grievances? I mean, it's the same thing, right? The, the ban in the populist right wing and mm-hmm. the protesters, you know, 20 years prior, right? Do, do they, they're talking about the same thing, the same dynamic, the same policies and, you know, the same phenomenon. But do you think they represent the same grievances? Like, were those activists, those protesters, the WTO protesters, were they defending the industrial base of the, you know, the, the middle of the country. Is that what, why they were there or was yeah. it? Cause there were other things, right? There were environmental concerns. Totally. There were a lot of other things. And my impression of it was always that there was a, that they were leftist, um, yes. specifically leftist grievances that they were bringing. Now at the end of the day, if it worked, then it would have worked for everything, right? Yeah. Like if they were able to, I mean, I assume who knows, maybe the, you know, if they were successful, then they would have changed them just for the grievances they had. And I, I don't know how it would have shaken out, right? But just that core question, were, were they representing the same grievances? And actually, can I add to his question yeah. and say, were, were they actually not just representing the same sorts of grievances, but 
what was the composition? It's was really it actually working class people from Middle America whose factories are getting shut yeah. down in Seattle? So there were two. There were two contingents. There was the radical one, and there was the labor one. So there's this massive labor march that was that the AFL-CIO organized, and it was much more, you know, uh, sort of mainstream, and it, therefore tame. It was just like a march mm-hmm. through downtown Seattle, and they had like um, marshals, and you know, like it was very organized. And that's how you do a worker march because these aren't professional activists. Yeah. These are just regular people. You know, you, you're not going to be like, let's lock down and do a sleeping dragon and like, you know, all this like radical stuff that the, that, that, that the anarchists were doing. But so there was a two distinct actions. There was the radical one, which took over downtown Seattle. And that was like anarchists, people who in the, that included people who the environmental movement, like mm-hmm. all, a lot of the, the NG, the progressive NGOs, um, Rainforest Action Network, who are pretty radical, but even like Sierra Club and stuff like that, they were with the with, with that contingent that went to downtown Seattle. Um, but it was being led by like like very radical leftists, and they're the ones who carried out the physical blockade that that uh, that shut down the WTO. So wait, the radical leftists were controlling the mainstream contingent. Well, no, the they WTO weren't controlling because, okay. then the, because then the, well, they, they were controlling the space because the they they locked down the space and they they occupied the space and the police couldn't get in and it was literally an anarchist zone. There was like mm-hmm. there was no there was no rule of law, but there was as anarchist sort of spirit and mm-hmm. and people like worked cooperatively it was a beautiful moment um i'm rolling my eyes as i say that with some ambivalence <laughs> because i did think it was beautiful but i also think it's very cliche but anyway so then then there was a separate labor march that mm. went um that went through downtown seattle and it merged mm. because it was going through downtown seattle, seattle which was locked down so there it merged with the radical contingent was that intentional some people broke off so um it was no. It, well, I mean, was the, the march was going. The march was going through downtown, okay. and then the lockdown was happening downtown. So I suppose in a way it was intentional, intentional. because everybody knew that downtown was going to be locked down. Okay. But you know, maybe and that's where the WTO meetings were happen. happening. Yes, just in that building and that yeah. hotel or whatever it was. Yes, okay. and the the delegates could not get from the hotels to the to the to the meeting spaces. It was locked down, at, um, right? Um, and then uh, and then and then there was a big. Uh, 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 labor rally at the um, at like the um, Seattle Mariners Stadium or something, mm-hmm. um, and so then so then a lot of the, those folks broke off. So it was so some of them remained downtown, like ILWU people and some of the rat, more radical unions stayed downtown, but most of them went to this Coliseum and did did the rally. So it was very so to answer your question, it was two very distinct groups, and one of them was working class union members, and the mm-hmm. other one was everyone from like. You know, hyper-educated, um, elite, ideologically inclined, radical leftist radicals to like anarchist gutter punks who mm-hmm. like ran away from home. You know, mm-hmm. they were the like and and who were breaking wind like anti the like antifa types who were like breaking windows and stuff. And and but, but that's who, all not, I remember. Who are not representative of the working class. But that's all I remember are those guys. Of course, I remember those people throwing windows into Starbucks. Right. You know, windows and like the. All I remember is so I, I guess you know I'm I'm left wondering like who who really ran this thing, you right? Know what I mean, well, it was it was it was um, cooperatively run. It was mm-hmm. very it was a very there was no hierarchy. It was mm-hmm. I saw the the mm-hmm. it was one of the things that was most inspiring to me is I saw the yeah. decision making process in yeah. action with this this consensus decision making which was extremely tedious, but it was but in in under those specific circumstances it worked worked incredibly well. Um, it can't be reproduced at scale, um, but um, but 
to answer your question, yes, I'm not claiming that yeah. this was an anti-globalization movement that was led by the type by the people who were displaced in you know states like Michigan, um, in like people who lost their factory jobs. Emphatically, was not that mm-hmm. those people were represented for sure in in the labor contingent, mm-hmm. but it was a radical leftist movement that that absolutely was speaking on behalf of those interests. Like, there's no question in my mind that the interests. That, that the protesters stood for in terms of shutting down the WTO and trying to mm-hmm. pre- prevent these pr- trade deals from happening yeah. were perfectly consistent with the interests of American workers. They overlap, but was it, and was it conscious? Workers. I mean, was there a, you know, was there a fusion, a, a, a conscious fusionism? Maybe right? I can yes. even put the point more clearly. Was there, was there a conscious fusion with you? Because you were one of these radical non-worker activists from right. the Bay Area, right? Coming right. out there as part of the vanguard. Were you <laughs> got a, were you a punk kid back then? What no, were you? no, no. I but I but I I was in. You were my, an anarchist, though, right? I I, I was a self proclaimed anarchist. anarchist. Okay. I was yeah. I I thought of myself as an anarchist. Did you see yourself as advocating for that that person in Middle America who'd lost their job? Yes. because of the fact that is what you that, that was your self identification. Well, I mean, I was like, you know, this is why I understand left um, today quite well is because like. Yeah, I did, but that was sort of an adjunct to the larger, more romantic idea of like dismantling the system, system. and like yeah. you know, the, like there was almost a religious element to it of like mm. you know, of like um, uh, of like fighting evil and like and like purifying our society of these in, like you know, there's this kind of like uh, mythical drive to, sure. to 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 my ideology at the time, and it was so all of it was the same mess of things like. Destroying the planet, mm-hmm. torturing animals, um, you know, destroying jobs. It was all part of the big evil system that we needed to you take down. down. Yeah. And so that was the ideology that was for my 22-year-old or whatever it was mind at the time. That was what was driving me. So, no, I can't say that I was fighting on behalf of the, the those workers. But those workers were part of the, 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 the larger system thing. you were trying to fuck. Right, yeah. which gets at the root problem again, right? Which is that the working class is never in charge. Right. Yeah. Like it's and that that's that's I think that the chief, you know, the fundamental point, which is that even when the left these days is at its, you know, I'll say best, quote unquote best, which is not engaging in this culture war, you know, politics, this identity politics, this sort of what I would call just a, you know, an upper class, an upper middle class kind of politics when it's trying to be kind of materialist, mm-hmm. right? As, as Layton was saying earlier, where they're saying, you know, we will represent the working class and we're going to try and do things for them. It's still this sort of like gatekeeping kind yeah. of relationship, right? It's not putting them in the driver's seat. It's not saying that this is actually a movement of working class people and they're in charge of it, right? It's not working class institutions that yeah. are in charge of it. Um, you know, if you the left right now is... Do you agree with that characterization of the WTO protests? Wouldn't yeah, you? largely. You think that was right? Yeah, okay. and I actually would even extend it to unions. I think that you, that you, that unions, I have a lot of experience with unions, and a lot of them are um, legit, like, working-class-led. Um, mm-hmm. Like, some of them even have rules that, like, you can't um, be elected to the um, to the executive committee unless you come out of the rank and file. Wow. Yeah. And a lot of them don't. And a lot of, and actually, ironically, this is part of the complexity of it. A lot of the ones that don't are the most effective and they're, they're, they're the ones that have hired in hmm. like people from Ivy league call like ra- radical well, lefty college educated kids to become labor organizers. I mean, I was a four year yeah. liberal arts educated 
guy who became an, uh, a labor organizer for SEIU. SEIU was one of the unions that was that was tackling was, that was doing that. But now SEIU is a super woke ass union now, and like mm-hmm. it's like that. It, you know, they they brought these are working class organizations that brought in elite kids to start to organize the working class for them, and it was very effective on a short term basis because there's a lot of well effective for what right. It was effective for growing the growing union, numbers. growing numbers, right? But and in winning, terms of, winning fights, right? But in terms, I mean, there's two there's two ways to see, you know, the effectiveness of labor, right? It's in terms of labor itself, like labor's own imperatives, which is growing its membership, and then there's also its impact on politics, right? And it's really, I think, on the side of impacting politics, where that dynamic you're talking about, where it's being led by professional class and educated, where it kind of, I think. And you can correct me here, but I think it goes astray because essentially they've become these, um, you know, these uh, wings of the Democratic Party. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. There, there is a specific person, actually, I could boil that down to. There's, I mean, it's an allegory, but um, Marshall Gans mm-hmm. who's at Harvard. Burning bridges here. Yeah, Marshall <laughs> Gans, is, his work is incredible. I have no bridge to, yeah. to him to burn. <laughs> but, but Marshall Gans came into the UFW mm-hmm. in the 1960s as a Harvard dropout, right? Yeah. Cesar Chavez um, re- recruited him, or actually um, uh, Fred, um, forgetting his last name, recruited him. Yeah. Um, and uh, This is United Farm Workers and yes. Cesar Chavez. So one of the most legendary worker-led campaigns in yeah. the history of right. so Marshall, social justice. Marshall Gans is a Harvard kid, and he comes in, and he brings his white guy, he comes in, he brings his cultural capital, his education, and he comes and he like makes a big difference in that campaign. Um, and a lot, and there were a bunch of like, this is the sixties. There was a bunch of like college kids who came out and like, did, like, mm-hmm. like, uh, uh, lended their assistance to the UFW and, uh, and m- made a huge, huge contribution to it. Um, that's great. I don't have any problem with that, but fast forward, like, you know, 50 years or whatever. And Marshall Gans is at Harvard at the John F. Kennedy school. And he's like, um, he's like training this cadre. Marshall Gans was instrumental in building the primary campaign for Obama in New mm-hmm. Hampshire in 2008. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's like, given us good advice. He's given you good advice. <laughs> I've talked he's, to him and he's given us yeah, good advice he, about organizing and governance. He's got like this institute where he takes these young kids and he like train, tra- trains mm-hmm. them to be these organizers, but they're all like these professional managerial class kids. It's yeah. all, it's all at a Harvard university. It's like part of that kind of world of like, the Ford Foundation and like the you know and, and Harvard yeah, like Jan- elite Jan- NGOs Jan- Jan- like exactly it's like this almost like it's almost like a colonial takeover of mm-hmm. the of the grassroots working mm-hmm. class movement that's what it feels like and it's like this started long ago this started with Marshall Gans going to the UFW in the 1960s this has been around for a long time Saul Alinsky um, before he died was like his big next effort was to organize middle-class white people yeah. in America. That was like, he was going to organize the PMC. <laughs> so it's like, you know, the left has actually been, the left, which used to be a working class movement has been deliberately trying to, 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 to hand its leadership over to the sort of college educated elite mm-hmm. tier that now runs it yeah. for a long time, for decades. So what I, what I see both of you saying is that in the short term, there might be some value in, you know, what you call the demographic or institutions of the left having power because they have access to relationships, capital, financial, or social that's useful to achieving immediate concrete victories, whether that's in the context of a union fight or politics or an election campaign or whatever it is. But in the long term, what is the problem? It's, it sounds like this is unsustainable because it causes a decline in trust among the people they're 
not only advocating for because it corrupts the people who end up in those positions. What is it that you think is causing the Marshall Ganses of the world to kind of drift from their original purposes? I mean, what do you think? You just name Marshall Gantz as the allegory for, for this problem. What do you think it is? It, ca- I- it can't just be that these individuals are bad because we're no. seeing it happen over and over again to all sorts of individuals from Barack Obama to Marshall Gantz. So, so what is it? It's the funny thing is that actually you could look to Marshall Gantz's research to answer this because Marshall Gantz yeah. wrote a piece um, about like he came up with this phrase called like, I can't remember what it's called, like strategic diversity or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was like, uh, basically he wrote this paper about how the UFW beat, you know, at the time. The strategic AFL's, capacity. St- strategic capacity, right. Yeah, that's the and, term he uses. You know, basically the thrust of that paper, and I, I don't disagree with it, but the thrust of the paper was like, we brought in a bunch of five league kids and that yeah, changed yeah. the game. We brought in me. But but I mean, it was like. Yeah, because it it, it shut down the development of the ordinary people, right? That That's what strategic capacity yeah, is all about. Basically. It's about developing leadership capacity in a large mass movement of people and empowering ordinary people to see their abilities. Yeah. I mean, it was sort of like, so it was, it was a comparison between the UFW and the Teamsters and the the AFL-CIO's like temporary union that they were trying to set up. It was like a bunch of unions competing with the same workers. And basically the, as far as I could recall from the paper, the AFL and then the the Teamsters were kind of they were reactionary in a way, but they were also kind of keeping it real. Like they were composed of the workers in the fields, mm-hmm. and he was like the UF and the UFW, of course, was also composed of workers in the fields. It was very much led by workers in the fields, but they brought in people from the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. They brought in people from the free speech movement. A lot of those people were college kids with from elite backgrounds or at least middle class backgrounds. Yeah. They brought them in and then, you know, his paper was arguing in terms of like how uh, basically broke people out of their kind of like fixed paradigms mm-hmm. of the way that things had always been done traditionally and, and and expanded their political imagination of how things could be run. And they won because they had this ability. They were way more agile intellectually of how to, how to like mm-hmm. def- beat the competition. I believe it. I think that's true. I don't disagree with the, the thrust of his paper. But yeah, it is sort of what, what you're saying, which is like you know, Marshall Gans came in and saved the UFW. It was like, you know, the, the, the bring, bring the elite strata in and, uh, and you'll get better results. Undoubtedly, you'll get better results if you bring the elite strata in. They bring so much. Um, it's like bringing McKinsey into exactly. whatever. You know, exactly. like you're bringing management consultants to make everything efficient. And yeah, you'll, you'll kind of improve things in this very superficial kind of, you know, kind of, you know, you'll hit your KPIs, right? Yeah. Um, but what happens is that you're also bringing in a class of people who have their own value system, belief yeah. system, agenda. And for me, it just comes down to the fact that these people are Democrats mm-hmm. and they want to like Democrats. That's their most important thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the day, there's, yeah, there's this one side where they're improving the organization, but for working class people to be in charge and to have an, it, to, to empower working class people politically in this country, they need to have an antagonistic relationship with the political parties, mm-hmm. right? They need to have their own institutions. Those institutions need to be powerful and they need to antagonize the parties. Right now, the working class is represented by professional class elites who are Democrats and who, whose main purpose and politically is to elect Democrats. To serve those, those interests. You know, and, to yeah. keep, and to keep their institutions that they're loyal to, which are not working class institutions, they are 
you know, what, what, what a professional class institution that they're loyal to. It's uh, Dr. Fauci right. and it's like the, the science. It's, yeah. it's right. the yeah, professors at Harvard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's the, you know, it's the, it's the clerisy, right? right. Which yeah. Layton you, you've written about, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's this, um, it's this elite clerical class of people who decide what is good information, what is misinformation. It's academia. It's, you know, those are the institutions that yeah. they're loyal to. Yeah. And those institutions are tightly interwoven into the Democratic Party, right? Yeah. And I feel like this is a lot of what appealed to people about Bernie's campaign in 2016. Yeah. Right? That Bernie's campaign was this campaign that was trying to point out the connections between the Democratic Party and these elite classes, primarily corporate, but, but also cultural, too. And the exclusion of ordinary people and workers from that sort of conversation, much yeah, less like decision making. Too, too, too bad Bernie was a good boy. Yeah. <laughs> well, what, what so I'd let's like talk about the change in Bernie's campaign, which I think both of you have written about a little bit, and what yeah. you see as the pathologies of the left today, and and how some of this kind of I think worthwhile sentiment to to try and empower workers, marginalized peoples, has turned into something very different from Sean what at least you think it should be one. doing. But um, you know, what one one thing I wanted to say that just I think for me really crystallized this idea that the democratic party is not really representing working class people any longer is there's a piece in the New Yorker about the future of the Republican party that was published a couple months ago. I forget the name of the journalist. You probably might know him by the night. Yeah. Uh, so, but it was about the future of the, the Republican party post Trump. And one of the possibilities that was envisioned by this piece was a reversal scenario, right? Where the basically the, the article argues that it's possible the Republican Party could be restored to that kind of the business class party that's pro-free trade, mm -hmm. pro-corporate, and so on. But it's also possible the parties kind of switch places, mm -hmm. and the Republican Party becomes the party of the working class, and the Democratic Party mm -hmm. becomes the party of the cultural elite, the coastal elites. Sorry, and the data, point, the, the data point that they use for this, and I was like, yeah, I don't believe this. This is kind of silly. Until the article points out one pretty fascinating fact about American democracy right now, which is that... In the 10 wealthiest counties in the United States of America, 100% of them are Democratic strongholds. Right. Mm -hmm. In the 50 wealthiest counties in the United States of America, 45 out of 50 are Democratic strongholds. Mm -hmm. So you think about power, mm -hmm. and you think about equality, and you think about politics and democracy, that is a pretty direct challenge to what you're thinking about Democrats and Republicans in the traditional power alignment between the working class the cultural or financial elites in the political parties. There's something strange going on in this world, but, but let's, let's move to this. That's part of the piece. And I think actually mm -hmm. we're probably all in agreement on this, that there's a fundamental disconnect between the working class, mm -hmm. people marginalized, including people of color, immigrants, working yeah. class people. There are a lot of folks who are being left out of the system where you might disagree is the role that wokeism has played in all this mm -hmm. and, and what, what role kind of accountability on racism and some of these kind of hot button social justice issues has used in either reinforcing or trying to bridge those gaps between democracy, the way it should be you know, executed and the way it's actually being executed today. So maybe I'll just start with, with you, Sean, because I know you've written mm -hmm. recently about this and I actually first saw the articles because Glenn Greenwald tweeted about it, but mm -hmm. you write a peach about kind of the cultural rebranding yeah. uh, that's happening right now in both American politics and I think in American corporations yeah. and how we're rebranding a lot of the, the values of, of justice and equity in a way that are not necessarily fulfilling those objectives. So tell me a little about kind of just your hypothesis and, and what you think is happening right now with wokeism specifically. Well, so, I mean, this was in the context of kind of looking at 
um, specifically what happened with this populist left moment, right? That started in 2016 with mm -hmm. Bernie um, and sort of what happened in the intervening years um, during the Trump years. Um, you know, what I would what I kind of say is like the left is sort of where populism goes to die, hmm. you know, um, yep. in 2016, if you look at Bernie's campaign um, at that time, it was actually not a very what I would call, quote unquote, leftist campaign. Can you say what you mean by populism before we sure. keep talking about this? What do you mean by populism? Yeah, I mean, what I would mean, I mean, there are God, this is, that would be another two hour kind yeah. of conversation, <laughs> right? Um, so just for the purposes of this conversation, I would just say um, something that is a, a class based uh, politics, something that is anti-establishment mm -hmm. politics. And, you know, there's a lot of debate about whether populism actually represents that rather than is it just anti-elite? You know, some people believe and I, I, I think that's a valid theory is that it, populist politics is can can often just be a very superficial anti-elite sentiment. Um, but. I, what I would say is it's something that is sort of broad-based and sort of directed at the mainstream powerful power centers and, you know, establishment institutions of society, right? Coming from a broad-based broad kind of, you know, populace, right? And I would say that Bernie represented sort of a left flavor of populism mm -hmm. in 2016, but he was able to achieve that. And that moment was created, I think, because... What Bernie did at that time was remarkably, I think, independent, right? It was really just his campaign. There wasn't a lot of left kind of influence or infrastructure. And when I say that, I mean, you know, the professional class at that time um, that represented even progressive left politics was not very much involved with his campaign. And, and many of them were, were Hillary supporters, right? Um, there just wasn't a well, very... They, and they hated him. Right. They well, hated yeah. Him. Not I mean, only were they not involved, they were actively trying to destroy the campaign. Right. Correct. And sometimes extremely corrupt. Right. Ways. Right. <laughs> I mean, like some of the stuff that's happened in the DNC is just crazy. Right. I mean, what and we, I still think it's kind of strange that people don't talk about that more. And oh, yeah. No, it's I mean, it's 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 fascinating the way that entire history has sort of been erased. And there's this whole happy yeah. family vibe. I mean, it's creepy, really. Yeah. Um, Thanks, Bernie. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> But, you know, the, the, the way we think about the left right now that has sort of like all kind of formed up in this coherent sort of Voltron of, you know, organization, institutions and its brands. Oh, I of love like, that metaphor. Voltron. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I hope the listeners know what the hell I'm talking about. Hopefully they're right in our age <laughs> range where they know yeah, <laughs> what we're talking about. Like me. <laughs> um, the, you know, there's a new Voltron, actually. Oh, so real? if there are like six-year-olds listening, right? yeah. if six-year-olds are listening, they'll know as well. There's just going to be this big gap between. <laughs> um, so, you know, like, so, and also the branding, right? Like even talking about leftism, like before 2016, there wasn't a lot of like proud young people being like, I'm a leftist and having those rose emojis in their like Twitter, you know, handles and like talking about like being proud of being socialist and all that. That came right after that grew out of Bernie's candidacy, right? Mm -hmm. But that didn't actually exist during 2016. 2016 was like, you know, Bernie was just this very like, he was seen as a very independent. That was his appeal. He, he was seen as outside of the two parties mm -hmm. in a very similar to the way Trump was perceived. That's why he was so successful in his primary was that he was actually an anti-Republican mm -hmm. Republican candidate, right? Yeah. Bernie was also seen as an anti-Democrat Democratic candidate. Um, that was much less the case in 2020. Um, but during 2016, his whole pitch was about being anti-establishment, anti-oligarchy, anti-billionaires. Mm -hmm. um, he would call out the Democratic establishment. I mean, he even called out like these 
these vaunted kind of like, you know, centerpiece institutions of the Democratic Party coalition, like plan, even like Planned Parenthood hmm. or Center um, for American Progress, Center for American Progress, you know, big, big Democratic think tank um, or even uh, HRC Human Rights Campaign. Right. Um, and he called them out because they were actually actively plotting against him. Mm-hmm. You know, they so he, that, that confrontation was sort of a forced one, but one that Bernie like, you know, picked up and was willing to do in a way that like he would never do today, right? What do you mean he called them out? Like he was just a- attacking them publicly? Yeah, he called them the dem- corporate called, institutions. Well, he called are- them the democratic establishment, establishment. Okay. right? Which was just like devastating to people who thought, that, mm-hmm. you know, who yeah. work at these organizations and think they're on the cutting, cutting, cutting edge, edge of, of progress of politics. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, yeah, okay. right? So in many ways, you could say Bernie was like not, Bernie 2016 was not a very left integrated campaign. It was this very up, you know, upstart independent populist campaign. And it was really helped by the fact that people hated Hillary Clinton, like a huge chunk of even the Democratic Party, just normies, working class people, people who were independent but Democratic leaning. They mostly voted democratically, right? But they were independent. They didn't love the idea of voting for another Hillary or another Clinton, right? Um, and that's what he represented. And that was a moment, right? Now, I don't want to give the impression that be- up all the way up until this point, the left was great, right? It was, a, I'd say moment intentionally because... The new left, as we call it, like the left that arose from the 60s, has always kind of represented this problem of elitism and being driven by academia and the professional class. I mean, this is something that has deep roots. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was this moment that happened in 2016 that represented something, whether it could, you know, let's say Bernie won, whether it would have continued and would have like represented a new shift for the left and for even the Democratic Party, say, you know, Bernie won the primary and then became president. Who knows? I don't know. But... I think it's instructive to look at that moment and then see what happened directly afterward, mm-hmm. right? Um, after, well, during the intervening Trump years, sure. right? Where then this new kind of, as I was saying, the Voltron kind of came together with this new branding that grew out of Bernie, ironically, yeah. right? It was this new... Actually, before you talk about yeah. that, were you a supporter of Bernie in 2016? I was, yeah. You were. Yeah, I was okay. a big time supporter. I mean, okay. that's, you know, that's, that, that is sort of, you that's know, where a met. lot... That's how you met. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so I was a big supporter of Bernie. Um, that a lot of that was from the dissolution of my experience so post Obama. Obama campaign, right? Okay. Um, and so, and actually, I'm going to just back it up mm-hmm. one more time. And I think you should continue the story. Yeah, yeah. But what what is it about you that led you to be drawn to these anti-establishment campaigns, or whether it was Obama in 2007 and eight, or Bernie mm-hmm. in 2016? I mean, what is it? Just your political philosophy? Or was there some personal experience? Because I mean. You are a coastal elite who's yeah. Sean grew from up working educated. Class. I, I, I grew up upper middle class. Sean grew up working class. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say that that's a big, if not maybe the biggest part of it is that, that you came from that background. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that, you know, I didn't grow up, you know, my parents are, um, you know, I was the first to get a college degree in my oh. family. So my, my parents were not college educated. My dad ran a convenience store. Oh, um, cool. And so I came, so I was able to kind of see... I think a lot of people, you know, fish in water don't know they're in water. And so like most of the professional class don't realize that they are not representative of a whole swath of the country. And they and I think especially when you're a Democrat and a liberal, you're just raised with this idea that you're on the side of Of justice, of justice. Mm -hmm. Right. And you don't realize that maybe that justice isn't actually um, meeting the actual needs of the people you think it's meeting. Hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and so I think that's a big part of it is that I had some connection to this culture that, I mean, you know, to be honest, 
that's what made me a Democrat in the first place and a progressive, because I did feel like this was still the politics that did address these people, even though it's run by and sort of formed and shaped by the people that I don't think are really the best people to do it. Mm -hmm. I still always felt that this was the right place for it. Sure. Um, I mean, the Republican Party of the, you know, 80s and 90s and that held nothing for for working class people either. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was, you know, there was was nothing there. Um, But when you spend enough time, when you spend almost two decades in it and you realize that it's not working Mm -hmm. and that there's a real problem here, I mean, that's where my critique comes from. Hmm. Where did you grow up? Uh, L.A. L.A.? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, so I'm, I'm sorry I interrupted. I just wanted to kind of understand your background. Yeah, but sure, sure. What, so you were talking to us about Barney in 2016 and yeah. then the shift that starts unfolding in the Trump years. I mean, tell us more about that. Yeah, so what happened was, you know, another, another big part of the Bernie 2016 campaign was that he was overtly uh, critiquing identity politics. Right. As a as a, as a way of trying to take people's focus away from a broad based universal class based politics. Right. And you remember that maybe you remember that line of Hillary saying, um, you know, what's the point of breaking up the banks if uh, right. we can't solve racism? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's just a total non sequitur, <laughs> right. absurd thing to say, but it was just so ham handed. Breaking up the banks will not solve will will not solve racism. racism right. I mean, yeah. it's just like what, you know. <laughs> Um, and so there was that that conflict during that election. Bernie represented that specific kind of materialist kind of approach and working class and broad-based populist approach to politics, right? Sure. And then what happened was that, you know, after, after 2016, I think a part of this was driven by Trump and how Trump really, really raised the temperature in terms of culture war and mm-hmm. identity, um, I think. Um, I think the entire Democratic Party and the entire like liberal professional class, like that's all they saw when they saw Trump, right? Their critique of Trump was purely like he won because there are a lot of racists in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the left that sort of came out of Bernie, um, unfortunately, sort of, you know, I think they sort of melded into that broader anti-Trump kind of resistance movement. Um, and I think even a lot of the figures now, this piece that, you know, I wrote about this whole process really focuses a lot on the squad, mm-hmm. um, specifically Alexandria yeah, Ocasio-Cortez, um, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, and a few others, um, because they were really sort of the avatars of this post-Bernie left that sort of grew out of Bernie, but then sort of morphed into something else a little different. And the argument here is that what happened was the left reasserted itself over that moment and converted it into Mm -hmm. its comfort zone right and it converted it into culture war now some of that was driven again by trump because that was sort of what worked best in you know within that broader democratic resistance movement that had a lot of attention and media and money and so it was easy to sort of just cast themselves as the vanguard of that right rather than trying to fight against that Um, A lot of that was also just driven by the fact that these politicians, you know, achieved um, mega celebrity status and that their base really was this big social media base of like young, educated, upwardly mobile, um, upper middle class people who were very driven by identity politics and social justice issues, right? Um, more so than these kind of working class materialist politics. And, and, And just people who could not even could not even stand the idea of making common cause with people who had, let's call it problematic politics, right? Mm -hmm. 
um, where that was just a total deal breaker, right? And so it was, what happened was in that intervening period, the left kind of reasserted itself and in, in, in some ways sort of it, and when it, you say the left reasserted itself again, mm-hmm. you're, you're, what you mean by this is this particular demographic, mm-hmm. and this particular set of institutions. Exactly. Coastal elites, highly educated folks. Exactly. We're not actually representing kind of the average person in America. Exactly. Okay. Um, a bunch of media, uh, independent media sprouted up to support this new kind of leftist identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and What's an example of that? Uh, like Jacobin Magazine, okay. Chapo Trap House, you know, like really popular like podcasts, an entire, you know, an entire kind of ecosystem of media sprung mm-hmm. up out of this uh, out of this moment. And it sort of started to inform back, kind of cross pollinate back with Bernie's run in 2020, which took on a lot of different characteristics, was much more kind of focused on these identity politics issues, less in touch with just le- had that less of a anti-democrat or or anti-establishment, independent feel. It was a little bit more of a mm-hmm. standard democratic uh, run. And so I think that's, and, and that's what we're left with now is that we don't have, that populist moment was a bit of a flash in the pan. And right now, yeah. all the populist energy does seem to really be on the right because the right is, <clears throat> just happens to be where all the, you know, non-college educated people are, um, you know, as you were talking about before about those those counties and how everything is sort of like, you know, dominated, that those all those rich counties are dominated. A lot of that has to do with college educations. Um, you know, that's the if, if you had to pick one big divide between the parties, it's college educations. Right. It's not even yeah. income necessarily, yeah. because there are some people who are doing well with their small businesses, but they don't have, you know, college educations. And it's it's essentially people who feel left on the outside of mm-hmm. these elite institutions that are running the country right now, all the power centers of the country. Um, and so, um, so yeah. can I ask a, mm-hmm. just a point of clarification about yeah. your argument? Is, is your argument then that this is kind of an intentional manipulation of the populism that erupted in 2016? That there were these cultural no. elites who saw this? So what, what, what exactly happened? It wasn't intentional. No, it was, no it's, 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 it's a natural, it's a natural result of the demographic makeup of the country. It's a natural result of the fact that our politics is completely dominated by the middle and primarily upper middle class of the country. It's a, it's a natural result of the fact that working class people are completely uh, disempowered. There are no working class institutions left in the country. Um, and so there's just no way to, I mean, it's just, it was sort of inevitable, especially yeah. since Bernie lost. Again, I would say, you know, who knows? There's this counterfactual where Bernie wins and maybe he dismantles the DNC and, like, you can do this top-down strongman, you know, thing where, like, you know, you just completely re, you know, reinvent these institutions. I don't know what would have happened. Yeah. I mean, the cynical person can in I, me says it would Can I give a worked, specific but. example to look kind of, like, uh, illustrators that, like, when Sean was talking about, um, you know, when the most of the country having this con- this contempt for Hillary Clinton, which made her the least viable presidential candidate ever, um, she, you know, her campaign responded to it by saying, well, it's because they're sexist. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't begrudge her campaign for responding with that message because that's a political decision, right? Mm-hmm. You need to discredit her, um, her critics <clears throat> and saying that they're sexist is a very straightforward way to do so rather than get into all the inconvenient um, debates as to w- why they hated her and her husband as well. Sure. The class um, politics, for right. example. And the fact that like Clinton, her Clinton and both Hillary and, and Bill have had connections to Wall Street, finance, right. and 
Where, NAFTA. Yeah. There's a there's a there's a yeah there's a huge um, you know there's there, there's a there's a long blood trail of the reasons why people in the working class would resent the Clintons, mm-hmm. but she reduced it to sexism, which was a political decision. Which I understand that's what you do during a political campaign. I do not begrudge it, but that message was absorbed by the the rank and file. And that has been reflected in every election since that the only reason why these people have contempt for us, the liberal elite, who are fighting for them and who know what's best for them is because they're, they must be sexist or racist or they're somehow like troglodytes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and let's not explore any of the thousand other reasons having to do with the policies that we have stood for, having to do with the contempt that we show just viscerally when we do interviews on MSNBC for average Americans. Let's disregard all that and let's just distill it to um, racism and sexism because that's something that if you are a upper middle class person, it's an easy narrative to digest and it absolves you yeah. Of all of your sins. That sounds like more of like an intentional strategy and an actual manipulation. Where It is an intentional strategy well, on behalf well, I, of the I think politi- what Sean politicians, was saying, but yeah. in, on behalf of the average MSNBC listener, it's just no. organic. Yeah, it just feels that, okay, it just, it's enough. Is that what you're saying too? That they're, they're obviously some political players? Because I was taking your argument to be something more like a systemic version of the infinity gauntlet argument, mm-hmm. which is that right. it's, it's not so much that anyone said like, hey, this would be a great way for us mm-hmm. cultural elites to reassert power. Mm-hmm. To, to shift away from class politics mm-hmm. to say race or gender politics, but rather it, it was more just, Hey, I'm feeling my, I'm feeling my power threatened in some way. I have yeah. the power now. Yeah. I, let me hold on to the infinity gauntlet <laughs> right, and just right. reassert my authority so, over everything. So and I think this is kind of the way I can reassert my authority because as long as yeah. we keep talking about class politics and if mm-hmm. I'm an upper class professor at Harvard or, you know, a tech person who thinks I'm extremely woke, and I have to try and justify the fact that I'm making $300,000 a year while the average person can't afford a home right, in right. the Bay Area, that's going to be a hard argument for me. So mm-hmm. let me go back to the thing that I can actually win on. So I think within a corporate boardroom and within a campaign war room, it is that cynical version, mm. I, for sure. I mean, that's because... Yeah. But but that, that avenue, that strategic avenue is provided to them by, as Leighton was saying, a very organic belief system yeah among the msnbc set yeah. right where what's, what's your basis for saying that that you think that in a corporate boardroom or within a mm-hmm. campaign that's the case because the reason i question this is mm-hmm. and my the bigger question i have for you is just to me a lot of what we're seeing in what you call wokeism mm-hmm. is populism there's mm-hmm. genuinely a huge number of people color who've just been pissed for years and this is mm-hmm. kind of their moment and i'm mm-hmm. sure you're somewhat sympathetic I, to that I, no. but but I'm the not. reason I don't buy this idea that I certainly I don't agree at all that it's it's deliberate manipulation. But, I'm sorry, but even I, I need to please. interrupt your interruption. Yeah. No, go ahead. And say that the average like like working class yeah. person of color um, who uh, I do not believe subscribes to the wokest ideology. Yes, I, they certainly don't subscribe to the ideology. But the power they have is because they're relating back to genuine grievances people have had for decades or centuries. Right. Why does Black Lives Matter the, have the power? Woke, it isn't the, because the ideology taps into taps something into that's real. obvious um, historical racial grievances, grievances that people have people. had for yes. hundreds of years. Absolutely. Yes. And, and if campaigns like Bernie's campaign did a better job of, of trying to address those grievances, mm-hmm. if and, and I think, you know, for example, I mean, I see Bernie's shift towards 
addressing identity politics is probably a good thing. Mm. If it had been done in a different way. Mm. I agree the way he did it might not have been perfect, but I think there were legitimate grievances about diversity, about the fact that if you're, if you're really concerned about the concerns of marginalized people in this country, well, mm-hmm. their classes of people are being targeted because of their race. And if that's not part of the story, when, you're just not going to be able to form the coalition you need to effectively challenge from the when, power. When, when, I, when I was organized from the union, we would have like hospitals are some of the most like ethnically yeah. diverse and ethnically segregated um, workplaces on mm-hmm. earth. And uh, you would have, you know, um, like I would be dealing with with like dietary was primarily Filipino and admitting was primarily black Mm -hmm. and like uh, respiratory therapy was primarily white and housekeeping was primarily Latino. Dude, you best believe that they all had grievances against each other. Like yeah. people are racist. That's like that. That's that's a thing, right? Like this is the one thing I'll agree with. Like Ibram X Kendi about is yeah, people are racist. Like that's a thing. Yeah. But I don't think it's the biggest deal in the world. Like it's yeah. like, and I know from from practice that is not the biggest thing deal in the world because you know you go and talk to the admitting people and they'd be like. You know, those, those, the, the dietary people are too close to management yeah, and you yeah. go and talk to the dietary people, like admitting people are lazy mm-hmm. and you go and talk to housekeeping. They'd have a different grievance about, about, the, I, think, I think what you're saying is this is not a mass politics. This is, this is like what, what the, you know, the shit that like people deal with in the their jobs against yeah. like working with each other and like these divisions. And it's just not a mass politics. It's not so, how you would well, unite people. What you, so what, you, what you do as a leftist is people you about, bring them together against yes, the right. common enemy, which is the right. boss. You're like, I'm trying to organize mm-hmm. a strike. Right. I'm trying to organize a union election. I'm yeah. trying to, I need all a majority of y'all to vote for the same thing. Mm-hmm. Which means I need you to set aside your differences and be like, we have a common enemy and that's what we're voting against. Mm-hmm. That's the job. That's what you're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. And so like you break past all that bullshit, right? You're like, there's um, techniques for it. I won't bore mm-hmm. you with them, but you know, you like yep. talk yeah, yeah. to the folks. Well, mm-hmm. well, what's, I mean, why did Amazon use wokeness to try and well not to try but to successfully break up i mean i think you you might be you know you might be a yeah, little bit organizing more on this, but they were organizing they, they were spreading literature right, right, to right, stop that oh it's yeah that, that right, is right. that is a common tactic that mm-hmm. corporate i mean smithfield for example i know smithfield very well as an animal rights mm-hmm. activist they use this tactic all the time because mm-hmm. i mean lane's 100 right this it is the case i mean there's a lot of racial self-segregation in this country whether it's at universities prisons when you go to jail i mean right been in jail enough times now that I can tell you that it's it's there's there's racial stratification and there's racial resentments that different communities expressed against each other. But one of the tactics Smithfield absolutely has used in the past is trying to convince the black workers the Latinos are all trying to get your jobs. Right? Convincing the the black workers the Latinos all are anti black and they they'll they're not going to treat you the same because you're darker skinned than them. And 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 the problem is and the reason that works is there's a grain of truth to it. So what what I think is happening with wokeism is there are these deep racial grievances that various communities have that are, I mean, probably all of us would agree are based on reality, you know, whether it's police brutality against black people, you know, we could disagree about the exact I would agree, but I would say they're shallow racial grievances. This, this stuff is like an inch deep. And I would Mass also incarceration. No, no, would, no, no, no. I'm would, saying the, yeah. the racial resentments that people feel against the Filipinos are like sure. this. Yes. The Mexicans mm-hmm. are like this. That Those shit, sorts of fights are shallow deep. and like, they're, they're created and, and fostered by corporations in the context of particular you fights. You can break through it. Absolutely. You can break and through you can, it in you a have second. To. 
Yeah, that's exactly how they unionize the big conversation you can problem. break yeah. through that prejudice. Yeah. And but but wokeists like like left woke lefties will have you believe that this is the most fundamental instinct of every human being is their racial tribalism. They're deeply yeah. in, like inherently racist against all the other ethnic groups. Sorry, that's not the case. Go talk to workers. That's yeah. not the case. Yeah, people make racist jokes. Yeah, they have racial racial prejudices. But at the end of the day, you know, the fact, the joke that like, you know, people who are woke will make fun of this, that like you talk to somebody they're like, well, yeah, but you know, I don't like black people, but my best friend is black. Yeah. Well, that's meaningful. Like you're, you're, mm-hmm. you, okay. You don't like, you think black people are lazy, but your best friend is black. It's like, yeah. well, okay. Well then you probably don't really have that like a deep of a commitment to your racial prejudice you, because you see your best friend as an individual and then you group his skin color in a racist way. But it's like, that's not, that's, that's so paper thin. That's so easily defeatable. But, but folks who are leading the left will have you believe that that's like the quintessential essence of humanity is our hatred for each other based on our skin color. It's just not, it's not only, nihilistic it's just it's not the case it's just not reality yeah i mean so i I, i'll agree with you completely that there are definitely racial grievances that are very skin deep and i'll just give you an example of this when i went to to jail recently in sonoma county there's the self-organizing structure to a jail or prison by race you know the tables you sit at the who you make friends with and the showers you use in california it's actually mandated by the state yeah sometimes true yeah the government actually reinforces this and says and 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 the government says they do this because it's it's to maintain safety in the prisons right it's disgusting um in sonoma county california there aren't that many asian people in sonoma county more generally and there are fewer people who are asian in the prisons there's no place for us and and so when i got into jail you know they're kind of showing me around they just it was a black guy who was showing me around the jail when i first went in he's saying I actually don't know where you fit, so I guess you're not going to be able to shower at all. And it was just, so they just basically told me there's no place for you, sorry. And he was joking about it, and it was kind of an insensitive comment, and I, you know, I'm, I didn't take it too personally, but, but these sorts of things, you know, are fostered and, and do exist. And, and they're skin deep, because it turns out, like that same guy, he said something that was kind of mean to me, saying I don't have a place to shower. He ended up being my champion in the jail system that, over the next, that, that sounds the next four like, days. That like actually was, sounds like a funny joke that he meant affectionately. Yeah. No, and it, it probably was. At, yeah. And, and it, I, didn't, I didn't take any personal right. offense to it, and I don't think he actually meant I wasn't going to be no, able I to shower. I think he was probably making and, fun of the segregation of the yeah. unit. Yeah. Well, I don't know if he was making fun of it. I just think he, he thought it was it's kind of funny here. expressing the reality of it. The reality right. of it in saying, saying and just pointing out there wasn't really a place for you and he, mm-hmm. not necessarily in a harsh way but other people are going to see you the same yeah, way yeah. you better get ready for this i'm just saying like <laughs> yeah. i don't even think that's an insensitive joke i think yeah. that's actually kind of a sensitive joke yeah, i think it's kind of like it's like hey welcome to a system that's racial segregation don't, don't, be, don't be such a snowflake okay <laughs> <laughs> i for the record i didn't take any offense i hope, to I hope, it, I hope I you called his manager and i didn't <laughs> see it as a racist joke but it was just kind of a did you cancel him i did not cancel i did not cancel but you know that is the sort of thing that's easy to overcome, right? Because you, you talk to the person, we have a personal relationship, mm-hmm. and and it turns out like he becomes my greatest champion. He he was the person who ended up introducing me to all the different camps and sitting me down with everybody and making sure they understood who I was and making sure I did ultimately find a place to shower because there was one shower that was like an other shower and they said, okay, actually we do have one place where you can shower. And it is Free nice shower. to <laughs> it is nice to be in a shower when you've been sitting in a jail cell that is completely covered in feces, which is what they threw me into on that day. It's nice to be able to shower. Uh, but I, I think that there's also some of these grievances that are deep-seated that reflect institutional biases that need to be rectified and acknowledged. 
Uh, and what I would probably agree with you is that the punitive way we try and address them is not helpful. And, and the way intersectionality is practiced today, it's very much an intersectionality of in exclusion mm -hmm. and intersectionality of punishment where it's, you know, if a black person feels and tells you whether it's a coastal elite or a person in a jail, hey, it's not cool to just assume I'm lazy because I'm black. I mean, that's not a small grievance. That, that has to do with centuries of discrimination, of denial of educational opportunities, of, of even imprisonment, you know? And, and, and the way we treat black people in this country is affected by that stereotype. I, I, and I think that's a deep-seated prejudice that we have to have a conversation about. Should we have a conversation that just kicks everyone out instantly if they don't disagree to what we're saying? Absolutely not. The kind you know, of, but the we kind, have to have a conversation the kind about of flagrant, it. To form. The kind of flagrant racial prejudice that you're talking about exists in America for sure. Yeah. And it exists at the like lowest tier levels of employment. Mm -hmm. Like I absolutely would be is I'm a hundred percent behind like me too. And um, like the, the, the sort of the, the ideology around racial discrimination. When you're talking about working class people who are applying for a job to be a, at a fulfillment center at Amazon. Yeah. Yes. At those places, there will be a hiring, like, a, like the hiring manager who's like, Mm, you know, I'm going to take the white guy over the, the Mexican guy. For mm -hmm. sure that happens. It does not happen in the places where liberals are most focused on, which is like Hollywood, mm -hmm. journalism, like these high pro, like universities. NGOs, yeah. universities. Those are places in which it's f completely flipped. Like you, you of course, and everybody knows this. You're like, these are places that are looking for quote unquote diverse candidates mm -hmm. um, and if you are the equal to or better than a, a white competitor there's no question you're getting the job if you're maybe even slightly worse than the white competitor you're probably going to get the job anyway that like there like that exists that racial discrimination in my opinion exists in those elite jobs it is completely flipped if you're trying to get a job at Denny's. Absolutely. That right. racial discrimination flips on that side. But like, let's acknowledge the reality. Like, let's be real about this. Like, we're not the media, like media jobs, mm -hmm. Hollywood jobs, these places like that, that Time's Up and Me Too and all these, the, the, these movements are focused on. They don't have that problem. They are so paranoid about being seen as bigoted that they bend over backwards to hire diversely and to favor diverse applicants to, you know, some trophy yeah. show. Um, focus on the working class, which is like a thousand times the number of people mm -hmm. as those industries. I'm 100% on board because racial discrimination happens and sexual discrimination happens and, and transphobic discrimination happens. All that shit happens rampantly at that level but nobody's looking at it you don't see a, you don't see new york times journalists looking at that stuff you don't see them like looking at like a strip club and like how they like how how they do their hiring or a denny's or you know it's all these elite strata things that they have access to where that problem doesn't exist yeah. and and the other thing i would say is that you are correct i agree with you that these are real grievances there are real deep-seated grievances that that reflect deep-seated like societal problems where i disagree is that they are real racial grievances mm. i think there's a sort of um there's a little bit of a i think there's a there's a really common pattern of taking these grievances these problems that are really kind of 
deep-seated problems in society, whether it's inequality or whatever else, and sort of converting them into racial grievances Mm -hmm. in order to kind of paper over the fact that these are actually broad-based problems that affect all people, right, in a very common way. And so that's why there's such a focus on the idea of systemic racism Mm -hmm. and white supremacy and all these new kind of terms to come up with to, to sort of take issues of poverty and inequality and turn them into um, and then turn them into much more narrow focused kind of racial and ethnic and tribal kind of problems. And and so, and, you know, and if you are a cynical person, you, you might say, well, hmm, maybe that's sort of a way of avoiding the actual root systemic causes here. Right. Um, and I think it goes back again to my hobby horse that like, a lot of the people that run the discourse, you know, within academia and media and, and you know, nonprofits and NGOs yeah, are just disconnected from the people who are experiencing it. Well, they're disconnected, but also they tend to live in places where all the rich people are white and all the poor people are, are you know, blacks and Latinos and, and minorities. Right. And so for them, and this is sort of me being generous, because what I'm saying is that to them, that's how it looks. And that's mm-hmm. why they think that this is how society breaks along those but lines. But where is that not the case? Where are the rich people minorities? Where are the rich people in... I mean, there are rich people. There are... Well, but most of... never a majority unless it's a... Well, most black... Most, so most, most African Americans are middle class in this country. They're not poor. They just don't live in the same place and where... The most successful ethnic group in America is Nigerian Americans. Mm-hmm. This is not... They're the so most much. educated... The most educated are, yes, Nigerian... And also immigrants. Immigrants are, are, you know, tend to be certain specific pockets of immigrants tend to be very successful. But I think rich white, you know, professional class people who live in cities tend to think all black people are really poor and drug addicted and they all, all are just involved in gang violence. And so I think they have a very narrow view of what America is and how it breaks down demographically. And that leads them to this politics. But um, of, of combining George- kind of, for example, class-based inequality efforts mm-hmm. to kind of race If you go to Washington, D.C., yeah. I remember one time I was like in an Uber or something. I was like looking outside the window and I was like watching like a very affluent, well-to-do family being uh, being like escorted outside their building mm-hmm. by a doorman. And then he was like bringing them into like a car with a, with a chauffeur. And all of them were black. <laughs> and it was mm-hmm. like, it was like, it was just this like, you know, that's how DC is, right? There's yeah. rich people who are like, DC is a black city. And there's like, and the class strata is just as norm, like the same as it is everywhere else. Mm-hmm. It's just not racially stratified. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think that uh, I'll give you just a recent example of why I, th- I think you're not right about this, just from the API community. Um, you know, there's obviously been a lot of media attention around hate crimes against Asian people. And I actually, frankly, think it's probably a little bit exaggerated, um, just to be honest. I think that I, I, as someone who's been targeted and had beaten up, I think it definitely does happen. And I think it's a real risk, but I don't think there's been a recent increase that I could see statistically. Uh, but I think that the feeling uh, that a lot of API folks, Chinese folks in particular, have right now is genuine and populist. That, that identity really does matter. Race really does matter to people. It matters in a deep and profound way. And whether it's culturally created or whether it's based on some real material conditions that have changed, the sentiments that people express in the context of a lot of these campaigns 
are genuinely from the bottom. But up. I'm not sure how that contradicts anything we are saying. Well, well, I think what you're saying is that a lot of what's happening with race-based grievances is is that you've got a, a circumstance in our society. For example, violence. You know, violence against people on the street, or police brutality, or lack of economic opportunity that applies to many different races. And then there's a cultural elite that stereotypes and sees this problem as a purely racial grievance and then kind of manipulates or converts that into a racial grievance when originally it wasn't. So the, the racial grievances are coming, coming from the top and trickling right. down. And what I'm saying is, for me, in my experience, a lot of these racial grievances, I'm not saying there aren't people at the top who try and manipulate and harness them for various bad reasons, but I think at the root, they're coming from the bottom up. That, Wait, that most but, people but, at Google but, but, and, at, and at Facebook and, and frankly, at the headquarters of the DNC, you look at someone like James Carville. I mean, James Carville mm-hmm. has been one of the most kind of public critics of wokeism and saying this woke mm-hmm. thing is a problem. Mm-hmm. I think the people in power are scrambling and as upset and frustrated as a lot of people who are also who are concerned that these movements have gone too far within these grassroots movements about the movement itself. So I mean, like I, I have I have I have um, no question that Asian people, like Asian elderly people in the Bay Area are getting jumped in the middle of the day in the middle of the street and brutally beaten and robbed. And it's been going on for years and it's been going on has? for long before the it, it was a national media story. But are you under the impression that it's like Trump supporters who are doing that? I don't think it's essentially Trump supporters. And, I, and I'm not is it, saying... Is, the, is white supremacy the problem? I think it's part of the problem. Yeah. I think, I think part of the problem is probably that... The assailants are not white supremacists. They're not white supremacists, but I think there's they're an ideology... white people. Yeah. No, I, they're often not. You're, you're right. But I think there's an ideology... I, I, I buy into the notion that there's an ideology of foreignness around Asian people, that you see them as different. Yeah, I buy and that. And so when they're in your community, you think, God, this annoying person. And I, honestly, I think a lot of the attacks have been, have been undertaken by mentally ill people, by people who already have other problems in life. That's but true. I think when you're, when you're part of a culture that's telling you this, someone's, this, this person's an outsider, this person's annoying... Even kind of stereotyping around Asian people being annoying drivers, you just see them and you're kind of resentful. Mm-hmm. And then you got someone who's a little mentally ill. Who are they going to take their okay, anger on? They're going to take their anger n- out on neither the neither me nor Sean are saying that racism doesn't exist. Yeah, I, I don't think you are either. Okay. I'm just saying I think a lot of the a lot of the reason these racial grievances have been elevated is not because of somebody at the top manipulating manipulating people at the bottom. It is generally because people at the bottom think this is a real concern. So, for example, I. I don't doubt that Smithfield was trying to use the racial grievances at the Tar Hall factory to get the Latinos and the black people to fight against each other and make the mm-hmm. black, black people think the Latinos are all racist against black people and vice versa with the Latino peoples. But I also think both of them had real genuine grievances mm-hmm. that a, a, an effective progressive movement okay, but how is many- going to acknowledge and elevate and address in a positive way. Not, not using intersectional as a sword to cut everyone down and say like, okay, every Latino person who's racist against black people, you're gone. Mm-hmm. But in an inclusive way that says, hey... Like, let's have a conversation about this. And frankly, maybe I'm, even I'm wrong. Maybe there was a specific instance where a Latino said something or did something and I'm interpreting it as racist, but it actually wasn't. But, but there has been a long history of people silencing those sorts of concerns. My question is, how many working class people do you think give a shit that Jenny Slate uh, did the voiceover acting for Not a many. mixed character on yeah. Big Mouth? Yeah, I mean, I think honestly, even most people who are, who are on the bandwagon of, of woke politics would that's say that's not, stuff all turns to. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that their argument to, to strong it all turns their to some problems with the between yeah. elites. Yeah, and I think the steel man the argument they would say these are kind of the cultural touchstones that filter down through the rest of society right. and trickle and down, trickle down, which. I don't agree with, you don't agree with. And honestly, even <laughs> if we talk to them more seriously, they wouldn't agree with. But they'd probably also say, well, we can't get people talking about the Amazon worker, right? Who can't get a job because they're black and the right. managers at Amazon How all just think black people are lazy. We can't keep people talking about that. That's not interesting enough. How but convenient. We, but we can't get people to talk about whether us. an Avengers actor, right, is, is black or right. Asian, right? That, and, and that is kind of a way for us to start that conversation. And it filters down to the Amazon worker. And I think it probably does, honestly. Uh, does, do, is there a lot of damage to people in those other stratas of life that mm-hmm. maybe the issues aren't quite as prominent? Is it as big of a deal that a Harvard professor is not do you think able... The fa- well, let me ask you this. Do you yeah, think the fact see. that like there are more Oscars being handed out to... Uh, movies that are starring and directed by black people is making a difference in terms of Amazon's hiring policy at fulfillment centers or like Denny's? Probably not a large one, but, but I think that for a society that is so, and it's, I mean, it's kind of one of these things where I think from an activist perspective, we're just asking, do we just accept the way the conversation is going now, which is to get the conversation going at all, you have to talk about celebrities. You have to talk about these big tech companies. You have to talk about things that are already in the media. Or do we try and force a conversation mm. that might be more impactful, but is also less attractive in the intention economy? And I don't think that's a bad faith argument on their part. I think it's just a strategic question about whether it makes sense to fight this on, on this battleground or this other battleground. But I, I don't doubt, at least from what I've seen, that a lot of it is coming from the bottom up mm-hmm. and not from the top down. But maybe I'm wrong about that. But the other example I was going to point out was just if you look at Google's policies, you know, over the last 10 years, you know, I, a lot of people have said like Google and, and Facebook and these companies are, are trying to manipulate the public or using this either directly through advertising or indirectly to get people not concerned about, for example, their monopoly power in various domains in the American economy and the mass amount of wealth they're generating for a small number of people. And I just don't buy that because I think if if you look at kind of the internal decision making and you talk like, you know, my cousin works in HR at Google, I think they're as scared and frightened by wokeism as a lot of the, the critics of wokeism on the left and the right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? It's, it's not a corporate manipulation. They're terrified by it. They oh, don't know yeah, what to absolutely. do about it. And so this idea would that, this that is, they're succumbing to it, though, in their decisions, right? Uh, so I, I wouldn't even describe it as succumbing. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some cases it probably is, mm-hmm. but in a lot of cases, I think they're doing it because they genuinely think that mm-hmm. it's probably the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and they're doing that in the context of, of corporate leadership that is, you know, cowardly and usually not very thoughtful about these sorts of issues there. But, but I, I think they're ultimately Google and Facebook are doing things because they're profitable. You know, sure. I think all of us can agree on that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the, the question is whether, they see kind of wokeism as an opportunity to kind of distract people from their other strategies to generate mm-hmm. as much profit as possible, or whether it's actually something that's a problem for them that they have to address yeah. just like everybody else in a position of power. You know, what I would say is I would kind of, I think there's a sort of alternative path there. I, I, I am not very married to this idea that is some like evil dr evil conspiracy theory at the very top where they're like you know rubbing their hands and saying oh we're gonna you can only get these people to fight each other yeah no i don't at all actually think it i mean i do think on some level 
marketing, you know, when you design a marketing campaign, as you were just saying, you do it because this is going to be the most successful way to get people to feel emotionally about your brand, right? Mm -hmm. And connect people. But along those lines, I do think that they feel that, you know, this is where the country is. This is where a lot of people are. This is where a lot of elites Mm -hmm. are, right? Our type of consumers are people, the people that work in our company. This is what they believe now. And so we need to connect with them. We need to be culturally in line with these people. Absolutely. Right. And so it could be like an honest and organic thing, but but that honest and organic thing is happening in this very rarefied, centralized, elite sector of society that is exerting tons of power and control over the rest of society that it doesn't have a ton of connection with. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's fundamentally the problem. They can be as honest and earnest about it as they want. But at the end of the day, this is a very sort of um, concentrated and very... Um, rarefied, you know, belief system. Why do you think Facebook has to kowtow to the cultural elite? Their employees are the cultural elite. I mean, do you think it's a recruitment problem? It's it's not just, well, it's not just like, you got to think about the people who are making these decisions. It's like Nancy Rommelman, who's a reporter who's reported on like a lot of this stuff that's happened in Portland around these Antifa, um, you know, um, battles against the, federal one of these federal buildings downtown um she's talked about how like there's like a uh you know nike is is based in oregon i think eugene and they uh they like a bunch of graphic designers like like volunteer to create some graphical display for some like in solidarity with the anarchists Mm -hmm. downtown who are like throwing molotov cocktails against like the, the 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 some federal federal buildings yeah it's like so this is the like do i think that I, do I think that the Nike executives, like that this went up to them and they were like, yeah, this will appeal to our demographic. Sure, go ahead. Absolutely not. I think that there were a bunch of like people who were like mm-hmm. in their late 20s, early 30s who were in the graphic design department of Nike who, them, who, cool. who, who graduated from liberal arts schools and who felt a real like compassion for this movement and also a certain amount of guilt because they worked at Nike. They were working for the man Mm -hmm. and they were like, so like we got to do our part to show our solidarity and they weren't going to get, maybe they asked for permission from the top. I don't know, but they didn't get pushback from, from there because of course, like who's going to push back on that. It's dangerous to push back on that. Right. Mm -hmm. So they like, so they, so they do the thing. Most of corporate America at this point is run by, People who are like probably in their, I don't know, late 30s at like the at the senior positions, maybe a little older than that at the really senior positions, the middle management positions, 30s, late 20s. They came out of this milieu. They like this is their this is the air that they breathe. This is they are the PMC. They are the professional managerial class. This is an honest expression of their um, of their self conception mm-hmm. and of their aesthetic, this is like that is corporate America. So, th- so the honest expression of corporate America is wokeism. And to that, I would add that Facebook is also highly sensitive to the other power centers of society that are run by the same people. And and the biggest ones, I would say, is the media, mm-hmm. which the media is very much sort of on this bandwagon, um, elite media anyway. Um, and academia and government. I mean, I think the democracy, I I think, I mean, the people that threaten to regulate Facebook, I mean, the people that could snap their fingers and break up Facebook and Twitter and regulate them and take them apart are 
are that class of people. So I think Facebook is very sensitive to, I mean, you know, this idea that big tech is um, just kind of, um, you know, really happy to have this power where they can, where they can, you know, um, censor people and whatnot. I, I think it's, a lot of it is that like it's being sort of forced on them by yep. people who have power over big tech. Like big tech is not as powerful as we think. It's actually sort of very sensitive to the other power centers of society. And that's why I think I wouldn't, you know, the idea that like, you know, people are champing at the bit to like in government uh, to break up Facebook. I'm not so sure because right now they have a good amount of power. I mean, as we were discussing earlier, you know, we just heard from the White House press secretary that they have this very tight relationship with Facebook where they mm-hmm. give them lists of people to to, to censor. Right. And does the government really want to relinquish that power by changing Facebook into this sort of more broken up, decentralized thing where you can't censor people and where they can't, you know, like I think there's a much tighter relationship between these different I, you know, I think I, I tend to think where we really are living in a bit of an oligarchy where, you know, these institutions are really kind of much more tightly woven with each other and working with each other. It's one class of people. They just happen to be working in different departments and we call them such and such Inc. and such and such dot org and dot gov. Yeah. But it's one class of people and they're in and out. It's a revolving door. They're all f- friends. They go to the same cocktail parties. They want to maintain respect with each other. And I think that's what guides a lot of these, you know, There's decisions a really interesting well. piece in, the, in New York Magazine about the New York Times' kind of pivot to wokeism mm-hmm. that, um, that talks about how, like, so the New York Times, um, when they were trying to make their pivot to digital and um, compete with Vox and all the, the, the digital upstarts, they were nipping at their ankles. Um, they went to Silicon Valley and they recruited all these coders um, to make the New York Times what it is now, which is like the premier digital outlet for yeah. media worldwide. Like they've done an amazing job. Yeah. In order to recruit those people, they were recruiting the top tier like coders and project managers, whatever, at a place like Facebook. Um, they couldn't match their salaries. They couldn't match their stock options. So what they said was, these are like, you know, like we're talking about they're Silicon Valley coders. The they're liberals, yeah. right? They said, you are working for Facebook. You're working for the problem. We're, we're giving you an opportunity to work for the solution. We're the New York Times, right? You can come and do good. You can turn your powers over for the force of good. And they recruited a bunch of people that way who took pay cuts to go work for the New York Times. And then a lot of, and so then when the, top, when the op-ed came out, the infamous op-ed from Tom, Tom Cotton, Cotton talking about sending in troops to quell the, 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 the BLM riots, the, the 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 backlash that that was you know that was signed on by a lot of journalists but it primarily came from those coders who knew nothing about journalism but they were like I took a pay cut to work for a social justice institution and now I'm like this is what I'm building like fuck that and they like fought back against that against that op-ed these are people who who signed up to work for the New York Times because they had a political and social justice mission, not because they had a journalistic mission. So like, yeah, that cadre is coming into power within corporate America, and this is an expression of their values. It is not an expression of working class values. It is an expression of the values of, you know, middle tier, 
liberal arts educated corporate America. Do you think the average coder at the New York Times who is concerned about the effects of a Tom Cotton op-ed on, on BLM, do you think they're motivated by self-preservation and preserving their own power? Or do you think they're, what, what are you, what's your, a lot of the psychology of, of kind of these Gen Z folks? Because the no, way you're describing it, it makes it seem like I'm here basically because my identity is not being fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Well, like in my experience, I mean, another example would be like the, the six-figure person who's a member of DSA. I've got a good mm-hmm. friend who's a six-figure Google employee who's in the DSA, and I think he genuinely does mm-hmm. want to support the working class. That's why he's a member of the DSA, mm-hmm. and he yeah, is actually an incredibly or- generous person. I'm not saying there aren't structural problems with that, and I'm not mm-hmm. saying there shouldn't be more people in the DSA who, mm-hmm. and in fact, the leadership of the DSA probably should be working class people, mm-hmm. but... I guess I don't see it as malicious as you do. No, I, I don't see it's no, it's just a bad product. You don't see it as malicious. So, no. okay, well so did, what is it then? It's well intentioned. It's just it's absolutely an honest expression of their values. It's, they a, are, it's belief. Are good yeah. people. Yeah. Who who and who think that what they're doing is, is supporting the cause of racial justice, even if I'm like a white guy who worked at yeah. Pre- yes, but this is how they see the society. The this is yeah. how, this is why my 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 critique is structural. It's not yeah. personal. It's not cynical. It's yeah. not devious. It's literally it's just structural. This is this is society. This is where power is. If you want. If you want politics to be different, you have to shift who has power, yeah. right? And who controls, you know, the discourse and who controls the levers of governmental power and organizing power. It just, it's structural, purely yeah. structural. I don't, I don't think people are nefarious. Um, you know, I don't think people are acting cynically. I think people act in their interests. Yeah. yeah. Right. Look, people, people who like European colonialists who uh, contrived the myth of the noble savage were well-intentioned people. They mm-hmm. wanted the best for those, like, you know, T- Tahitian natives who they came across. They weren't, like, wishing ill upon those people. They weren't trying to increase human suffering. In retrospect, we recognize that their their archetypes that they created were patently racist and that contributed to the project of colonialism. It doesn't make them bad people. And they were they were liberals. Like, they were, like, people who are the equivalent of, like, you know, liberal Democrats in American society today, these are like enlightened people. But their their paternalistic racism doesn't make them, you know, doesn't make their, their, their like it's not a judgment of their character or who they are. It's, it's, it's a matter of like what it aggregates to. Yeah, I guess the distinction I would draw between those colonists who came to various places all over the world and, you know, basically paternalistically took power over the noble savage on the basis of, but like artists like Gauguin, you know, like yeah, people yeah, weren't sure. actually oppressing them, but were just like experiencing it and being like... Yeah, I guess the difference I draw between that and kind of the white person who's practicing woke politics today is I think the white person practicing woke politics today is, is genuinely trying to give power to other folks. Yeah, and I see a lot... Of, I, I don't. And, and I, I know, and that might be the fundamental difference that I think for, for you and Sean, you see a lot of this is performative and about kind of me maintaining my power as a cultural elite mm-hmm. when... I think so. My 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 analysis says that they are doing this politics, you know. Not it's again. It's not cynical or nefarious, but they're trying to just justify why they are the elites of the country is because yeah. they have these ideas. They understand where the real pain is. They understand who needs the help. But it's still a it's still a relationship where you get help from me. I am mm-hmm. not actually giving you power. I am recognizing your yeah. suffering. And I'm charity. So what does right. it look like to you for a, a white working or a white kind of cultural elite person who graduated from Harvard and is now working at Facebook to give 
power it's back to say a, a worker at an amazon distribution center like a black amazon distribution worker what does that look like to you it's is different it, from what they're doing now. If they were actually to give power? If they're actually to give power. Sorry, go ahead. You're, you're saying specifically a black worker, not just any worker? Whatever. Answer it however you'd like. Um, I, you know, I would say you stop working for Facebook and you advocate for breaking up your company, right. probably, right? I mean, those are the real... It, it's, uh, you know, we come, I'm coming at it from a, a materialist perspective of breaking up concentrations of power and wealth yeah. in society, yeah. right? So do something I, I that actually I mean, I would, the I, you know, I put a fine of resources between yes. folks who have right. resources and right. folks who have. And I, I put a so. fine point on it by yeah. saying break up your own company, but it, and it's, it's not just really about, just about changing the material conditions. Right. It's not about specifically not Facebook. About, I would I would not want to give any individual advice because I just feel uncomfortable with the idea that like I know what's what, best for the right them thing. or what's like more moral for them to do. Like a cutter of Facebook, I don't know what their circumstances are. I don't have a problem with somebody being a cutter of Facebook. I have no problem with that. Do what you do. Like I'm not judging anybody, but I would say systemically, yeah. one thing would be to stop privileging the credential of a college degree. Mm-hmm. Like stop making that like the equivalent of a union card to get into a middle class white collar job. Yeah. Like the, the, there is, I think the biggest factor for discrimination in the United States is this credential discrimination. Mm-hmm. You cannot get into the middle class without a college degree. And, yeah. and that you, didn't and, used to be the case. Mm-hmm. That didn't used to it's, be the case. It's a very recent phenomenon. And, 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 and it, 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 it percolates out into like it, it magnifies itself in terms of racial discrimination and gender discrimination. All the other forms of discrimination like are magnified by that class discrimination around, mm-hmm. around this stupid, meaningless credential that's, that means you spent four years fucking around getting drunk and like attending some classes, getting some education, sure. I'm sorry, it doesn't divide me from somebody without a work, without a college education in any fundamental way other than I went to summer camp for four years where I learned some skills. You know? Yeah, I mean, along those lines, you know, like I, I took the bait with your hypothetical because, I mean, it's interesting sure. thought experiment, right? But at the end of the day, I, I don't, I, like Layton, I don't really require that Facebook employee to do yeah. anything. I don't think Because it's a structural problem. Exactly. You. Yeah. It's, no, it does, you know, change does not require that person to do anything. What it requires is... It, for that person just to have a little less power yeah. and for another type of people to have more power. And as Layton was yeah. saying, a big part about that is the way we credential society and how those credentials lead to opportunities and wealth and inequality in society. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's an important question. Down basically. with education is our message. Down with education. Yeah. Don't, don't go to school. <laughs> Drop out. <laughs> Well, actually, don't because you'll be fucked in this society. But we should build a society where you can drop out and be right. just right. fine. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I wonder if I can ask about your specific experiences in the media, too, because there's massive conflict right now in the media. There have been, you know, revolts at Vox, the New York Times over various racial conflicts. And I mean, what have you seen change in the media over the last, I mean, even five years in, on these issues? And, and what do you think is working well? What do you think is not working well? I mean, again, just a direct continuation of what we were talking about. I think yeah. it's getting more and more elite every day. It's getting more and more concentrated. It's just sort of an Ivy League pipeline. Um, and I think that is... Are there numbers on this? I'd be surprised yeah. by that. Because I look at kind of the, yeah, the people are. who yeah, yeah, are in yeah, the yeah, media. Is written about yeah, the a friend of ours who's a journalist, um, he <clears> wrote, <throat> while he worked at The Intercept, he, uh, he wrote a piece about this. about, And it was, I think, based on an actual study, a survey 
um, looking at, it was just some amazing percentage of uh, journalists working in media are from the Ivy League. It was looking at that percentage. It was just kind of like a a mind-boggling number. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think that the with media, I mean, I think there have been huge changes. Everyone knows that uh, print media is dying. Um, There used to be a revenue model for media, which is based on advertising. Um, you know, back then, liberals, leftists criticized that model with some good reason to. You know, there's the Chomsky thing about manufacturing consent. You know, you had like, uh, you know, uh, corporations would not, if you got a lot of advertising money from the fossil fuel industry, you're probably going to like temper your reporting on the fossil fuel industry. For sure. Um, and, and that's true. And that was a real like moral hazard. Um, but the advertising model has died because of the internet. Um, and the media is a dying industry and it's shifted to other revenue models. And those revenue models include such things as, um, subscription models that have turned into donation models, a la NPR, you know, Mm -hmm. like quasi charitable asks of their audiences. Um, and what that has done is just balkanized media into like, like for example, the New York times, the New York times, um, audience base six times what it was before Trump. Um, and, uh, and during those years, those intervening years, the Trump administration, they were at, they were calling on people to give them money to hold Trump accountable. So the New York times became an activist organization. So like all, like all these media entities have become dependent upon us. Uh, and this, this is on the right as well. The right and the left have become dependent upon, um, essentially voluntary contributions from partisan uh, audiences to continue to produce content that satisfies that audience that has hyper polarized the country and it has made media much much less honest because you cannot report certain things like the way the new york times reported the 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 um the the uh protests slash riots last summer was a a unbelievable unbelievable in the way in which they uh simply denied the reality of what was happening in some of these cities just didn't report on it Mm -hmm. because their audience wouldn't respond well to it so now every outlet is democracy now or gateway pundit for the right you know it's like it's 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 so that's the transformation that happened that's happened with media and you just can't what what are examples of the new york times not reporting accurately you're well, talking the about the protest hypothesis last year. is the most like 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 flagrant one okay. for a year they were like they, all the media was saying that anybody who entertained the idea yeah, that theory. this came from a lab in wuhan china was a was a nut like you were like chemtrails or mm-hmm. like you know uh the frogs turning gay whatever you're like an alex jones person if you even entertain this notion yeah. then all of a sudden flip everybody's like well, this is the most plausible explanation there are other explanations maybe they're true but you know it's likely that it's this way and there was like no accounting for it so that was the most flagrant one but another one i would point to which was what i just said which is the blm protests mm-hmm. and and there were right the blm uh, you know, I went to BLM protests as a participant. Like mm-hmm. I was like, I'm opposed to police brutality. Who the fuck isn't, you know? Like I was like down with that cause, but I'm also not going to be on planet Mars and pretend that there wasn't, that there weren't um, riots that 
torched entire blocks of small business, immigrant-owned businesses. There wasn't violence, including homicide, um, uh, as an expression of that outrage. And I'm not going to pretend that didn't happen. Like, we can talk about it. We can talk about the factors that led to it. But let's not pretend it didn't happen. And the media just pretended it didn't happen and called you like a right-wing nutcase if you've even acknowledged that. Yeah. So that's another example. And probably There's the others. biggest example, I would say, of the last year. I, I mean, COVID lab leak probably is is a, t- is a top contender, yeah. but the, the Hunter Biden oh, laptop yeah, 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 yeah. was just the blackout yeah. of that just because it would have just absolutely Right enraged. before an election. Yeah, right before an election. I mean, and that wasn't just media. That was social media, too. I mean, it was just, a t- again, I'm going back to, you know, the fact that these social media companies are sensitive to mm-hmm. the media companies and that there's a bit of a cartel kind of aspect to this, that there's a class. There's an, so, you know, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that this is an oligarchical kind of structure to what we've got here. You had social media working in concert with um with uh, social media working in concert with media companies working in concert with operatives working in, you know, actual politics and Democratic Party all coming together and deciding to just completely have a blackout of a story that, you know, the, tr- the truth is it came out to be a valid story. There was no there's no evidence that it was, you know, some kind of, um, you know, Russian disinfo campaign as mm-hmm. was actually published. And, and instead of talking about the story, they talked about a fake Russian disinfo. Wait, did you mention that Twitter was, shut down the New York Post Twitter story. account yeah. over yeah. it? Yeah, they shut down the New York Post Twitter account. And why well, they, is they subsequently apologized for doing so, I think. They oh, admitted good. it was an then error. That's all good. So. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this stuff it makes me think that the, the problem is not so much with a particular subset or demographic or instead of institutions having too much power. It's just a problem with polarization and identity just going completely overboard. Right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't yeah, even matter. Yeah, but me, the, but, me, the, me, the strength changes in the structure of the media uh, uh, industry is what has produced that polarization. Yeah, maybe. But there's other factors too. Just, sure. So this for example, one of many factors. I mean, one of the big factors for me is just the, the rising levels of anxiety across the entire country. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. it's just the fact that it's, it's not that the, the coastal leaves are controlling things and, and, kind of constantly diverting our attention away from things that are going to threaten their power structure, but just the fact that all of us are just much more fragile right now because we just went through a pandemic. And frankly, for the past 20 I, years, I, I really we've think seen a that like massive a, increase in mental health issues across the entire country of, of like all the, the stuff that I've spewed in this conversation. The yeah. one that I would say is most important for people to understand is that the media profits off of us hating each other. Mm-hmm. And that includes like people hating white people for their white privilege Mm -hmm. and it also includes right-wingers hating liberals for being like a bunch of like like you know for a bunch of snotty uh elitists who are trying to take away their guns or whatever like that like all of these issue all of these polarizing third rails that we're all familiar with are not organic features of our society i mean they exist in our society sure people have opinions about guns Mm -hmm. people have opinions about the way that a white person relates to them but they're not the most meaningful things in their lives but there is a media industry a multi-billion dollar industry that profits off of finding those issues i mean you're talking about like the russian disinfo like the, the 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 russian op to polarize americans that's our entire institution of the media right now is is a big algorithm to find where those dividing lines are and to exploit them yeah, and like sure. and like antagonize them and make you more 
uh, resentful of the person next to you and like liberal versus Republican, white versus black, Mexican versus black, you know, Asian versus white, whatever, like rich versus poor. It's all about and like making those those uh, those antagonisms um, more distinct um, because that's the profit model of the media today. We should that's one factor in the political polarization that we're living yeah. through. It's it's just part partly a product of the nature of human psychology. Our our focus on things that are fearful. Our focus on things that, that about others that might be a threat. The negative attentional bias we have. I mean. So they're exploiting just a, a defect in human psychology, yes, right? Yes, but that, it is part of the business model now because it yeah. is the way that you gain subscribers because there's you don't sustain a media organization based on advertising anymore. Yeah. It's that, that, that business model is broken. So you need to find partisans who will give you money just like the ACLU asks for money and focus on the family or whatever asks for money from people who are, are, are like uh, committed to their cause and will write a check to see you defeat their enemies. The New York Times does that now. NPR does that now. And of course, the right-wing media has done it for a long time. Yeah. One thing that's curious about that hypothesis is I, I've never understood the critics of, of the media who say that the media was just so invested in hating Trump and destroying Trump, who also say the media was making money off of Trump, mm-hmm. right? This, there's, there seems like there's some disconnect. There. Yeah, no, those are the same thing. The media made well, but money if you, Trump. But if the, if the media had an incentive to, if Trump was the best thing for the media, why wouldn't they secretly be trying to keep him in office? Because it's going to keep fueling their profits, right? Structurally and institutionally. I could see from an individual psychology perspective, someone having both of those beliefs. But if, you're, if your explanation for this, this paradigm is structural, then it seems like there's something off about that. And maybe there was something secretively happening behind the scenes where the media was trying to keep him in place mm-hmm. while nominally hating on him and, and being part of this Trump resistance. But it, that never made a lot of sense to me and I still don't quite get it. Yeah. Do you want to respond to that? Well, we... Go ahead. No, I mean, I just think that, um, you know, classes of people, they act on their interests, but, you know, for something like the media to decide, hey, this guy's making us a lot of money, that, that requires a level of organization that we just don't really see or need for classes to exert power, right? So I don't, I, I, I you know, that would be the conspiracy of the century. If you mm-hmm. uncovered it, you'd be famous <laughs> where, you know, the media was actually trying to, I mean, listen, we do Keeping know in 2016, you know, Jeff Zucker at CNN was actually... Um, you know, promoting Trump. Yeah. I don't know that he thought that, oh, this would lead. In fact, I think he probably thought he could do it without mm-hmm. Trump winning the election because he, like many people, thought it was just such, such a far-fetched idea that Trump could ever win yeah. the election. So that was this is the, the case. CEO of, of CNN at the CEO time. CEO of yeah, CNN, I mean, I think yeah. he's left since then. But, uh, yeah, yeah, correct. Um, so there and Specifically, what he did was just basically play tons of Trump. Oh, all Constantly day. broadcast all Trump rallies, rallies yeah. speeches, debates, yeah. And it was, it was, I mean, he was right from a, I mean, he was doing yeah, his fiduciary duty, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of generating profits for the company. Um, but in general, I don't think, you know, I think you can express your interests, but without like engaging in any conspiratorial. Yeah. The other thing yeah. is, I think you have to like, look at these as complex systems. Like yeah. the C-suite boardroom people, um, who were prof- who were looking at the bottom line, like the, 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 the macro figures and seeing how much they were profiting off of Trump, mm-hmm. probably wanted him to be reelected. Mm-hmm. Um, the like um, 
stringer or even the like Jake Tapper level, like the, even the, like Chris Hayes, like the millionaire people who are like, um, consider themselves journalists, not business people who are very invested in the, in their politics. were profiting immensely off of Trump, but that's not their self-conception, right? Yeah. They wanted to see Trump defeated mm-hmm. and they did what mm-hmm. they could to see. So like the media industry isn't one and, monolith. That's like, this is our mm-hmm. bottom line. Let's and, all get in line. And there are competing interests, right? I mean, yes, there is a bottom line that this, that, you know, CNN and cable news and the media has in terms of profits, but there's also other bottom lines in the corporate world, right? One is just like your exposure to regulation, your exposure mm-hmm. to other elites, particularly in government, you know, you, if Joe Biden is going to win the election, you want a good relationship with the administration and with Congress. I mean, sure. this is what's happening. This is why Facebook is so happy to um, engage. Facebook and Twitter are so happy to engage in this kind of censorship because, you know, again, going back to what I was saying, it's actually not good for their bottom line to be censoring people right and left, kicking people off their accounts, making that's less activity. That's less freedom mm-hmm. on their mm-hmm. networks. Their networks do better with more freedom, with letting people say what they want. But there are other bottom lines yeah. like making powerful people happy, keeping them happy, keeping them off, you know, the regulation trail, right? right. Keeping them off. So, I mean, there are these competing bottom lines. Yeah, makes sense. All right, well, we've been talking for a couple hours now, so I thought maybe we could just conclude by saying, what are your thoughts about how we can build a, a better form of, of racial politics and a better form of just politics more generally on the left? And what, do you, what are your concrete suggestions? Get rid of uh, college education as the... The as big the, one? As the primary factor for determining your one's future mm-hmm. one's material future that would be my main one and you think that would change the culture of the left oh absolutely yeah. yes i think it would in change terms everything. of identity politics oh for sure yes i think it would change everything hmm. for the better okay sean what do you say yeah i mean along those lines i think breaking up the concentration of cultural and you know governmental and technological power in the institutions that exist now um, you know, reintegrating essentially the country and kind of, you know, I think spreading these in, the power of these institutions throughout smaller institutions throughout the country that are more integrated, you know, sure, racially, but also class-based. And, you know, I think racially that's that's going to be a natural outcome when you diversify and break mm-hmm. up power in the country, right? So um, just developing institutions that are naturally kind of imbued with working-class class representation, yeah. you know. All right. Well, thanks, guys. It was a wonderful conversation. Yeah, no, it was Thank great. you. And can't was wait fun. to have the next one. Thanks to Leighton and Sean for that incredibly useful conversation and for spending some time with us and for having kind of some respectful disagreements about race and politics and social justice. Thanks to Louis Bernier and Julie Waldrup and Crystal Heath and Ronnie Rose for assisting with this podcast. And thanks to all you for listening. And if you like what you heard today, Please share the podcast with one of your friends.